0: Know about how we put together yeah. our little show If, if you'd like to hear yeah. the puffer play me. the characters that you cheer I'm So join us as we go, go, go Below the Frame On this episode of Below the Frame We're talking with designer, writer, director The very funny Kirk Thatcher He talks about Star Trek, Jim Henson And of course the Muppets Plus, we will be debuting a new segment on the show today, so get ready, it's time to go Below the Frame. Come on, let's go! Go, 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 Below the Frame. Welcome to Below the Frame. Hello. How are you? Uh, I am Matt Vogel, and it is so good to have you listening, and uh, today... You're going to need those listening ears, because we are talking to a man who has done so much in show business, not the least of which, is that he has been involved with Muppets since the late 1980s. He he is a veritable ball of huggable energy, Uh, huggable, of course, when we're not in a pandemic, but it is so good to get to talk to my friend, Kirk Thatcher. Uh, He has had so many experiences that I've never heard before in this conversation, so it was a treat to talk to him. So without further ado, let's go Below the Frame with Kirk Thatcher. Below
1: the Frame.
0: Kirk Thatcher, welcome to Below the Frame. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I'm very good, Matthew. No, I'm, I, <laughs> you are drinking from a,
2: a tiki. It's a gremlin's tiki cup in honor Ooh, of nice. and things I worked on. Wow! Yes, someone like gave this to me as a present, and uh, I realized this was a to keep my my whistle wet <laughs> and also to yes. enjoy a diet soda. It's not booze, folks. I'm, All right, I'm well, not that yeah. crazy.
0: <laughs> We're going to talk about you, about your life, sir. Oh no, <laughs> not that. Yeah, I know. It'll be be good. It'll be fun. I hear you grew up in L.A., is that right? I did. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, Van Nuys to be specific. Uh, And it's probably one of, you know, a
2: lot of people say, how'd you get in the film business or why'd you get in the film business? And I think a big part of it was it was a job. I mean, you know, I went to school with kids whose parents worked in it. My best friends who lived next door, uh, their dad was a composer who would worked for Disney for years. Uh, He wrote scores and and music for uh, like some of the movies like That Darn Cat some of the other ones. And then he uh, had his own private or small post-production facility where he did editing and and wrote music and did sound of had guys cutting sound effects and sound. So I kind of realized not only my fascination with creature movies, monster movies, fantasy films, which I loved in science fiction was that it was a job like your best friend's dad could work in that business. So it wasn't, I'm always impressed with people, you know, who grow up like in the Midwest and, you know, become amazing sculptors, painters, puppet makers, filmmakers, where it's it's people, and most of them have that story. Even upstate New York, we're like, well, that's not a job. I mean, you're crazy. <laughs> like, you will, you can't go to Hollywood. They don't want you, you know. And, and they're like, I'm going to do it. And, and, and gonna do it. Street, Yeah, it's filled with that. Uh, people, especially with
0: well-meaning parents, who are like, my dad told me there's no career in making monsters. Because I was making <laughs> monsters at like seven. I was one. I was going to ask. You know, when did you think this was a job? Like really early on. Yeah, well, and Imagineer Disney was here. Uh, so I yeah. wanted to do one of two things. I wanted
2: to make movies with creatures in them, uh, and and all aspects of that. Not just make the creatures. I wanted to make movies. All all of it. I love. And then uh, I want to be a Disney Imagineer. Oh wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Because um, so I knew that was a job. Uh, because I, you know, going to Disney again. If you grow up and you're down in Disneyland, I mean, Disney is like an hour drive from where I grew up. But we went there a couple times a year. as I got probably I don't. My parents weren't huge Disney fans, uh, uh, you know, at all. I, I know some people's parents were like had passes and all that. We would go like once or twice a year. But still, it was still once or twice a year, you know, from probably about seven or eight to to like sixteen. Um, so, kind of special effects and creatures, all that seemed to be. Kind of the the center of the bullseye for what I wanted to do early on, and I, I drew all the time. I sculpted. I made little super eight movies. And uh, to my mom's credit, she my dad didn't under my dad was like had three law degrees and just was not. Uh, he he played music, but it was a fancy. You know, it wasn't the thing you could make a living at. And I remember him telling me two things. I said before, uh, you'll never make a living making. You can't make a living making monsters, which. He grew up in the depression and it was true for his life. Um, and also he said, uh, all artists are bums <laughs> because in his my artists were the guys, huh. the guys. Yeah. And he wasn't saying it to me. I hadn't defined myself as an artist at that point. I was probably like 10 or 12, but he said, cause in his mind artists were the guys in world war two when he was in France, in, in Paris specifically sitting on the side of the Seine river and, with their, you know, paintings they're trying to sell for five francs of the Eiffel Tower or whatever. And they were in shabby clothes, yeah. you know, a little jeton of cigarettes. And, and he just thought, well, that's an artist. And they all look like hobos and, you know, live this uh, bohemian lifestyle. And so uh, he didn't get me at all in that respect. He was very loving and supportive, but I think very much guided by my mother, who was a teacher who wasn't artistic at all, but had taught artistic kids. In fact, she told me this story growing up that she had taught Walt Disney's nephew, and I don't know who it was. So he would have been in junior high in uh, or elementary school, I guess, in the 50s. Uh, but she had taught him and he drew all the time and doodled and she said he was very creative and, and she was impressed by that. So she knew that because I did that, I wasn't some freak of nature. Or something. I mean, I think, again, both of my parents had, well, my dad had grown up in LA and knew, <laughs> he knew actors and movie people. And what he really... <laughs> Uh, Discourage me from doing was being a comic or a comedian. I wanted to be a comedic actor. I know you find that hard to believe.
0: <laughs> I do. Knowing me, I know you're, you're so like,
2: serious, so scholarly. Yeah, he, he seems <laughs> yeah. more like a professor. Such a, um,
0: But but no. So you wanted to be a comedian, but what? Like, who were your inspir- your comedic inspirations? Uh, as a, as a Monty runner? Python, Steve Martin. Oh man, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. When I
2: was really little, I just thought Jerry Lewis was hilarious, and my mom, <laughs> you know, told me the story. She says you are like six, and we were watching some Jerry Lewis movie on TV, and <laughs> she said I turned to them. He said, "He's my." kind
0: of people. <laughs> that sounds about right. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. I think it was like the Aaron Boyer, one of his earlier ones, where he wasn't just completely annoying. Uh, wow. At least not to me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would say Python, huge influence, Monty Python, and then uh, through them, like the gateway drug to Billy Connolly and Spike Milligan and The Goon Show and just British comedy in general, which was okay. My mom, I mean, my last name was Thatcher, and my parents were both Anglophiles, so my mom thought it was silly, but she appreciated the in, the intellect behind um, Python. So yeah. you were still you were, I was I was about 10, 10, 11, 12? Yeah, 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 I was like, well, I was eight in 1970. So yeah, I was a kid. But I think I saw them around, yeah, I was about 10. 72 is when I discovered them. And then Holy Grail came out. The absurdist, I think what I loved about that style of humor um, was the absurdity. In other words, they, it, you have to have a certain level of Intelligence to know that absurdity is absurd, and I'm not saying I was particularly smart, but I I liked that, you know, like summarized Proust. You had to know what Proust was, you know, or, or, or a bunch of um
0: and sitting around, you know, insulting each other. Uh, oh yeah, and there was uh, such political right. stuff of the of the de, of the oh, day yeah. in England that yeah. that went right over my yeah, head. Yeah, that exactly. I sure loved. Well, they, they'd
2: make fun of you, you know, know Neil Kinnock.
0: I'd be like, oh, oh yeah,
2: Neil, <laughs> hilarious. Neil <Kinnick. laughs> Um,
0: but slap him with a fish. Right. I'm on yes. the floor. Or it's, the
2: silly it's, walks. I mean, that's what I mean. They really ran. I mean, talk about a gamut. Oh, uh, man. From just complete silly walks to, you know, yes. the Philosopher's Song. I mean, th- and that's sort of why I love The Muppet Show, to, you know, be a little on point. The Muppets, mm-hmm. to me, I've, I've always said they're Monty Python with puppets. They're characters. They're a troop of characters that do, that, that run the gamut uh, uh, from, uh, I mean, uh, The Muppets have grown much. Uh, broader in the sense of telling stories with you know kind of soul and meaning, which Python never did. Um, but th- th- still, they're they're the Muppet Show in particular, not the Muppets and, and Toto, because Sesame Street obviously has a lot more heart and uh, and um, sweetness to it. So I mean, that's what's kind of great about the Muppets It's a huge playing field and 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 you're not limited. Um, I think society or culture in the U.S. particularly has made them kind of
0: child, not childish, but have put them in the bucket of, it's kids entertainment. Kids stuff, yeah. Yeah, I know, which is what Jim never wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: Jim and I working together would would talk about, you know, oh, that's what dinosaurs, the last thing we're working on was dinosaurs. And he said, I don't want to be a kid show. I want, you know, big intimidating dinosaurs, but with sitcom tropes of, you know, a mom, a dad. And, And he wanted to really, and again, being Jim, it wanted to be funny, but also have a message. And the message was dinosaur thinking leads to you know it was a parody of people who are like we can burn all the coal we want who cares about the environment <laughs> we're humans where we've been here yeah. for a couple million years you know uh yeah and in fact everything I worked on with Jim was not kidsy was not I, I didn't I, I've never felt I, I I mean I love good children's entertainment but to me you know a Pixar movie is good children's entertainment it's not oh, yeah. a kid's movie it's just kids safe and I think that's when the Muppets are the
0: best you know that's their sweet spot
2: yeah it's that four quadrant uh except uh, yeah (laughs) i have a funny story (laughs) i think i've told it on some other podcast but when we did muppets tonight and it was on uh abc jamie tarsus took over i think right after we hit the air so we made the show with whoever the old regime was jamie tarsus took over and her big hit was friends on nbc and so she called uh, dick basucci and i in as the kind of i guess uh writers um and we went in and she said, you know, okay, so you've done the first season. She watched the show. She goes, "It's fun, but how can you get males 18 to 35?" And <laughs> and we said, "Well, you know, we have uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, we have uh, Heather Locklear, we have, you know, uh, um Sandra Bullock, but you know, they're not in bikinis. We have Pam Anderson. Like, there you go. There's a girl in a bikini." Right. Uh and she kind of went, "Uh-huh, okay, okay." And we talked about guests that were going to come in the second season if you will, the second half. And um I think you know that was the problem. Is she saw it as, and they kept moving us. I think they moved us four or right. five times. We still wanted Emmy, so you know. And but that was a show that wasn't a kids show. You know, it was it was like it was essentially a Muppet show in a
0: TV station. And I do want to come back to that. I want to, but I want to sure, go right? backwards. I want no, I want to hit right? rewind. <laughs> Right, so, <laughs> too far. Uh, so you you make these films when you're a kid, right? What what? And you say there's like there's there's uh, creatures, creatures and, and spaceships, and they're,
2: they're little short films. I realized that I wasn't what. <laughs> so in high school, junior high school, other friends were making movies, but I remember a buddy of mine tried to make and, and almost did succeed in making the Maltese Falcon with you know sixteen year olds. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> It's and incredible. it just looked silly to me. I mean, but it was amazing camera angles, and he knew what he was doing, but it was with 16-year-olds. So I just thought, yeah. you know, it's, it's girls in training bras trying to look like sexy dames and, and you know, 16-year-old right. with pimples and a fedora hat saying, <laughs> dang, who was that? I saw you last night, you know, and it just it, it seemed silly to me. And I saw uh-huh. I made movies about kids, whether I think the only two I even got close to uh, until my senior year, and then the school I was at was was progressive enough to let me make a senior film as my thesis. So I made a, a movie that was all the way through. But again, the, it starred a kid, uh, and it was about him uh, being up in an attic and finding this book and opening it up, and this wizard pops out, and 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 it was very body Python because I knew, you know, I think it had to be a ten minute film. This was like twelve minutes, and it was narrated because we didn't have sync sound. That was a big deal. So it was narrated, and it was very silly, but it had special effects,
0: it had miniatures, it had a demon with goat feet. <laughs> <laughs> did horn. you know, how I mean, were you just making this up in your head, how to create the demon with goat feet? Or did uh, you like, was, have yeah. magazines? Yeah, or? there were some magazines. There was a thing called Starlog and
2: Fangoria, I think, were oh, yeah. around in the, in the, well, I know Starlog was around in the 70s. I think Fangoria came a little later, but uh, there was uh, a couple really are Again, growing up in Hollywood, there were bookstores and magazine racks that would carry there was one called Cinemagic, which was literally a fanzine put out by I still have them somewhere uh, put out by just guys like me who were a little older who made you know movies and they would share like I you know I bought a gallon of latex paint and figured out you know I could make a rubber skin <laughs> with it. and then he's like, it didn't work really well, so then I realized, <laughs> oh no you had to get latex. A, there was that and that was a great resource and also emboldened you to like, okay, I don't need a lab and, and a, a whole thing. My mom was tolerant except the time I plugged up the kitchen sink with plaster. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, I didn't realize when you wash it out, even though it's really watery, it will still gather in the trap and harden. So, yeah, it, uh. it cost us like, probably 80 bucks back in the day Get replacing the sink trap. But, uh, so there was that and there was um, people who did it. I met Craig Reardon, who uh, is known for doing... Uh, Work in Poltergeist, the movie um, it was a Twilight Zone movie. He did uh, two creatures for that. He did the Dan Aykroyd. Want to see something really scary? Face. Uh-huh. <laughs> he did the, uh, the the Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet creature. But Craig was a local guy, and he, and when Cinemagic came out in the mid seventies, he wasn't a no name. And, and these articles he probably written when he was like 18 19 and now he's like twenty five, doing you know actual things, but. I looked him up on the phone book and said, hey, I saw your article on how you made this little stop motion thing. And and I just had some questions. He's like, yeah, sure. And he was super helpful. And then he said, you know, you should go to John Chambers' house. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, Johnny Chambers lives in Burbank and he's really friendly to kids who want to learn makeup and stuff. So I had my mom drive me down to John Chambers, literally, and just knocked on the door and he was in his garage lab and... He wasn't super warm and fuzzy. He wasn't a, a mean. He was just like, yeah, kid, well, you know, here's some, what you want to do is go to a dental supply house and they'll, they'll sell the stuff that you need and, and here's some samples and here's a, a catalog from this place and this place. And so, you know, there were people willing to, to share. There was a, a makeup show at Universal Studios called Land of a Thousand Faces and, and guys who had read about in famous Famous Monsters Magazine, I have to call out was a huge influence on what we call ourselves monster kids now. Anyone who grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s who read Famous Monsters, loved Harry Harryhausen movies, King Kong, all the classic Universal stuff, um, Famous Monsters was our bible. I mean, it came out every month or so, and we all have the same story. Like, I remember going to the drugstore or the supermarket or the you know the the general store and seeing if they had it, and then you just pour over it. And it was just pulpy, you know, crap paper, black and white, and a color. These great color covers, though, by an artist named Basil Gogo, who sadly just passed away, but these amazing lurid uh, oil paintings of of skull faces and King Kong and Dracula and and really you know good art, like really. Excellent oil painting. It just happened to be of, you know, horror movie stuff and and some sci-fi. And uh, this guy, Forey Ackerman, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a science fiction writer, lived in L.A. and had this crazy house up in the Hollywood Hills. And so you could go visit there. So I met people there, other guys a little older than me who had done makeup effects. I said Craig Reardon. So it was in the air. And if you were nerdy enough to, to look for it, you could find it. Again, if you grew up in Oshkosh or, you know, Texas – you were, again, I'm so impressed with people who did that and then figured it out. I mean, you know, there's a huge puppet online presence, and that goes back to, I met Phil Huber, who's a world famous marionettist uh, when I was a kid. Uh, Funny, uh, I met a couple people through church, through my mom uh, you know, very religiously, to use a phrase, going to church every (laughs) week, and she said, oh, I met someone who was a puppeteer I'm like, really? You know, and that's how I got it, that's how I met Joe Johnston at at ILM uh, at that point Um, But so there was a support group of like minded, uh, you know, artists and creators, and they're always willing to share and until Star Wars and and then progressively after that, then I mean, still affects artists. I mean, if you see Dennis Mirren or Ken Ralston or John Knoll or any of these guys, if you're not at celebration or a big convention, and you say, hey, you're dinner," you know, most nine times out of 10, they'll talk to you. Because again, they're not, yeah. it's it's not, like, and they're minor celebrity, like people like, oh, you're famous. I'm like, I'm, you know, if this is fame, and then I welcome it because I've seen like, real fame. <laughs> I've been working with Leonard yeah, Nimoy and Jim, I mean, Jim Henson wasn't too bothered because he wasn't a face that was uh, well-known, but working with Leonard Nimoy uh, for the couple of years I did, and then even just having lunch or dinner with him in the after, like
0: it's just, it's really difficult to have a it's normal. A, it's a job all the time. Yeah, and I want to ask you. You are uh, you during may. this time. Please ask me. I'm going to ask you, like, Matthew. Dur- during this time, uh, you you knew about Sesame Street, but you oh, were maybe group. a little you were aged I down, know, or did you?
2: It. I liked the humor. I liked the puppets in it, and then I saw you know some Muppets on Su- Sullivan, so I made the connection. Like, oh, that's the same. Okay, guys, but yeah, Sesame. What I loved about it was the the multimedia aspect, the animation, stop motion puppetry and the puppets again you know all the way through uh, joey mazzarino who was running it up until recently like it was adult friendly i would say it's a kid show that's adult friendly as opposed to the other way around it's funny you know the parody stuff they were doing um even back then uh even parodying you know kermit the on the spot reporter which used to be a, a trope uh you know that uh, Sid Caesar would do, you know, and, and the Muppets were doing, but they were talking and just it'll, conceptually is funny here. We're talking to the letter A and, you know, an a, and it's, <laughs> yes, it's, it is. It's, it's conceptually funny. Yeah.
0: It's in that absurd world a little right. bit. Right. You know, at least right. in, the, in the early days. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, that's what I loved about it as well. Oh, and the, the Muppet, Muppet, Muppet show yeah. would have been a little bit later on. That was like high school. It was 75.
2: I, I, I started watching because I wanted to watch Saturday Night Live because of comedy, but then I loved the land of Gorge. And I'm like, this is cool. And of course they killed it after. Yeah, five uh, episodes and you hear that. I asked Jim about it. And he's like, oh, yeah, they didn't. They were like, nobody wanted to write for us. Nobody got it. They thought it was stupid. They thought it was Sesame Street. You know, like, why are we dealing with these Sesame Street guys? And and, you know, the, 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 if you read books about SNL and isn't a comedy fan, I do. The, the early days were brutal. You know, they were, it was, oh, yeah. it was tough. So being like, you know, Jim was kind of a mellow book, you know, I was like, yeah, I love everybody and I've got a neat, interesting conceptual idea. And they're, you know, I'm sure they were like, oh boy, can't we, you know, and you have Mr. Mike, uh, what was his name? Mike uh, o- O'Donoghue. Mike O'Donoghue, who's like, you know, stabs yeah. knitting needles into his eyes and <laughs> screams for yeah. minutes. So it was not, it culturally, it was not a good fit. A little bit of a clash. <laughs> yeah, which is in some ways why you got the Muppet Show. Jim was like, this isn't working. I want to just, kind of do my own thing and you know the rest is history with lord grade and going over to england um but you know it wasn't that jim didn't want to do stuff that was adult friendly it's just they were they were too cool for school you know it's like this is lame this is puppets this is lame puppets it's funny i have this conversation a lot and and you experience it too i'm sure puppets have been ghettoized in america much more than in europe i have friends who are a german husband and wife puppet team the government pays them To make puppet shows and they travel like cabarets. It's not kids' shows. They're very abstract, very like German expressionist, and they get a subsidy from the government. And then so to do it, and then when they travel, they take a part of the door. It's just you know mind blowing to artists, and and it turns out a lot of first world countries do that. Canada has the film board, and and I don't know if they subsidize puppetry, but a lot of other countries have a cultural, you know. uh, department in their government and they promote the arts, you know, we're here. It's like, you know, all our, it was my dad, all our support. <laughs> yeah. Good, good luck. <laughs> and then, you know, you get the NEA and and they do support people who you know, the lady who made a cow dung painting of Mary or something. And so <laughs> I get, it's like, wait, wait, my tax dollars are going to that. And I understand it. And it, but it's because art, particularly modern art has been so um, rarefied, like, Oh, you know, if I, if you don't understand it, then you're uncouth. Whereas, and arts is entertainment, like what we do, puppeteering and
0: filmmaking and, mm-hmm. and plays and theater is, is considered in a weird way, low art, you know? It's, do you think now, I mean, nowadays I, it's just, there is so much of it and anybody can get on the internet and do their show, yeah. Yeah. their podcast, their, their YouTube channel, the their, whatever it is.
2: of entertainment, which is great, but it's also, as a friend of mine who is a computer engineer up at ILM, used the phrase signal to noise ratio. It's like there's it's a fire you know youtube's a fire hose and there's great stuff on it but you know it's yeah. all it, it's all either they get picked up by a major corporation and they spend tons of money and time promoting it so they can recoup their costs and then make money or it's word of mouth you know i found two shows recently through word of mouth letter kenny which just was picked up and then another show uh. I heard about through Australian friends called Auntie Donna and I'd seen a couple YouTube videos and they were sort of like an Australian Monty Python and then they got picked up by Netflix. So, oh you know, the YouTube route works uh, and there's, you know, YouTube sensations. I guess Justin Bieber and uh, Ariana Grande kind of came out of that. So, in some ways, it's exciting, and that kind of anyone with a phone and an internet connection
0: can, <laughs> can make content. It's possible. It's possible, but it, how do you cut through that, like that noise? How do you cut well, through and rise above? I, I say marry someone who has a
2: good steady income, and you can. There you go. Because that's <laughs> the hardest thing. People are like Kirk. Why do you do your own show? I'm like, I'd love to, but how do I make money while I'm making the show? <laughs> right. and, you know, I put it on YouTube, where you don't make any money until you have three million viewers. So, you know, I should, if I, if I had a time machine, I'd go, don't buy a house, save up <laughs> all your money and and just rent a studio space, you know, cause, uh, but even, even Lucasfilm, ILM, uh, shrinks and grows with projects, you know, it's, but that never surprised me. I always knew it was a, a gig economy. You, you mentioned ILM. So let's yeah. talk about that. I met Joe Johnson, just to backtrack a little bit. I met him when I was 14, 15 Right when Star Wars came out, my mom came home from church and I met this lady. Her son worked on Star Wars. Turned out it was Joe. He was very gracious. Gave me a tour of ILM, which was about a mile and a half away from my house. I said I could have ridden my bike. Oh my better. gosh! Yeah. So again, just you know, that that's just luck, dumb luck. Um, and he was a lovely guy, and and he was an amazing artist. And so he gave me a tour, and I showed him what I was doing, and he said, "Well, you know, keep doing that. Learn how to draw. Learn how to paint and sculpt. Do all the things you're doing." Cause I said, I want to work, you know, I want to work with you guys at some point, mainly because I thought, well, God, next summer, I'll just go sweep the floors and suck it on. Of course, within a year, they move up to Marin County, San Francisco. And so getting a job there to make coffee or whatever, to just kind of be an apprentice, you know, goofball didn't happen, but I kept making my movies and sculpting. Like I said, I made a senior thesis film. I, I made Creatures. So that summer after I graduated, me and some friends, my next door neighbors, whose dad was in the film business, we took a road trip to go up to San Francisco, and one of the goals was to visit the new ILM. So Joe, again, very graciously gave us a tour on a Saturday and we got to sit in the model shop where all you know, the Millennium Falcon was and the Death Star. So at this point, all they had done was, uh, well, Star Wars and Empire. Okay. And they were starting on this movie that they couldn't. I remember I saw stuff that I learned later was from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I didn't know what it was. They had GI Joes dressed in army military stuff. They had a couple heads uh, of people screaming. And I just, you know, you, God, you don't know what it is. So was. cool. Yeah. And they had a dragon. <laughs> they had these really cool dragon, little stop motion dragon puppets. And they just said, oh, that's for a project we're working on, but you know don't say anything. You weren't supposed to see that. Um, so, I gave them this creature I'd made, this kind of fat goblin. He actually looked very much like the Troll King from uh, the Hobbit movies, the big fat one that uh, Barry Humphrey's voice, Oh no, you know. So he had a big goitery. He was fat with a chin, uh, you know, beady eyes and a big belly and saggy boobs and little horns. <laughs> he was this demon for a, another friend's short film that we made. We almost burned down my parents' garage. Oh God! <laughs> we we did a fireball yes. gang where we soaked a. Steel wool and cotton ball, just balls, soaked it in, I think, kerosene or alcohol, and ran it on a wire so the steam would hurl a fireball. And super cool, yeah, super cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stupid teenagers. So we lit it on oh, fire, yeah. and you know, my friend was like, "Oh yeah, it's not." I tested this outside, and only you know, the flame only burns like this much, which which was true. But of course, it hit the ground, and then the the liquid just spilled oh. out and created this puddle of fire. Luckily it was a cement floor garage and we just kind of went oh, shit, and opened the door and cause we had the door closed. So it would be, and we'd smoked it up with a smoker anyway, we, we uh, <laughs> but that's for another day. Um. So I gave this creature, <laughs> and it, it turns out they hung it on the wall of the creature shop, which at that point was just one room and it sort of became their mascot. So six, seven months later. So I went to UCLA for one quarter, which was that fall. And so around January, they'd announced that we're working on a third Star Wars movie. So I immediately called my friend Joe and said, hey, I I will come up. Look, I I went to UCLA for a quarter. They're not going to let me touch a camera until I'm a junior if you want to be a film major. I just want to go watch you help make a Star Wars movie. Um, And it was funny, and this is one of those moments where you're like, somebody up there likes me. He said, who did you talk to? I said, what do you mean? He said, who told you? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I just put your name on a list for people they should interview because George wants a creature shop up here, not in London. He wants to be more associated with it, not control it, but have a day-to-day as opposed to – back then, you know, there wasn't even fax machines. So it's like, we'll yeah. they'll they'll email you some Polaroids, George, and in 10 days you'll – you know. You'll be able to look at them there. Yeah. So uh, they were building this creature shop, and I had all the commensurate skills to – I could mold, cast paint, mix rubber paint cast rubber. So I got the job because uh, I was cheap and I would move to Marin County. Because the other thing is like, well, why didn't they hire Rick Baker, San Winston? Because like, they didn't want to move to Marin County. And George was notoriously um, thrifty. <laughs> um, he, he was like, I'm not going to pay you twice, you know, and, and I get it. That's he, he he didn't lack for getting people to, to work on it. Uh, Phil Tippett was already there and and, and Ken Ralston, those guys. But, but they hired me on as the first official Creature shop hire for Return of the Jedi. Wow. Which was Revenge of the Jedi at the time. So then set up the creature shop, just mold cast painted pretty much every creature except Bib Fortuna, Jabba, and the Ewoks. But then I went on location and took care of Ewoks for weeks in uh, in the forests of Oregon uh, or the forest moon of Endor uh, and became really good friends with, uh, I think, about 60 little people. I'm still friends with a few of them today because they live in L.A. and they, they're in the biz. That's um, awesome! Yeah, uh, it was great, and there's some fun pictures of me. Like, there's a bunch of the Ewoks just in our, in they're not in costume, and they're, I'm kneeling behind them, so I just look like I'm part of the, the group. And I thought like they were lovely. I had such a blast with them. Um, and then it was in the desert in Yuma for all the the sand pit, Sarlacc pit stuff. I helped build the Sarlacc pit, which was a story in itself. Um, oh, wow! So that was Jedi, and then I did some uh, because I was in the Creature Shop. I helped out a little bit on Poltergeist, so it was fun to see Craig Reardon again and I was like, you helped me when I was 14. He's like, oh, I remember, you know, and then we're still friendly to this day. Uh, I worked on star Trek two, a little bit on ET, uh, star Trek two with a set of eels for the ghost in their ears, a little bit on ET. At the timeline uh, gets fuzzy. Cause then I went to go work with Chris Wayless on gremlins and, uh, Chris had shut up. He was going to co-run the creature shop on Jedi, but left to start his own company. And, I'd become good friends with him, became fishing buddies, and we would go fishing and, and stuff while he was trying to get work. And he finally got gremlins, so I went in and set up his mold and paint shop, start working on that, went to LA, did some puppeteering for a couple weeks for big group scenes. I, I have a, the, the joke is I spent three days between Phoebe Kate's leg, Phoebe Kate's legs, but I had a gremlin on each hand. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, she was a sweetheart. I saw her like three years ago in New York, and she pretended to remember me. I think she remembered the crew in general, but uh, that was fun. Uh, so then I did Gremlins, so there was some puppeteering, but it wasn't – that was my experience up until I met Jim and started working with the Muppets was what I call creature puppeteering, which is, you know – and Gremlins was the most Muppety of any – most of the time you're pulling a cable or working RC or just, you know, keeping the head alive. Like I puppeteered the um, dog, the Klingon dog in Star Trek Three. So that's what I'm saying. The timeline gets fuzzy because I worked on Star Trek Three helping to mold and cast the worms that come out of Spock's coffin – And there's a picture of me in Cinefax. I think it's the only picture of me in Cinefax where I'm in this Tyvek suit because this thing was covered in slime. That's slime. And I'm I'm puppeteering this worm as Christopher Lloyd is strangling it. Um,
0: Uh, uh, There's me and two other people. It's not me alone. But anyway, so I was puppeteering then. And then... I don't care about those other people, Kirk. We're talking to you, and I want to hear your slimy worm story. story.
2: Well, and then it gets better. (laughs) So the dog, the lizard dog that was in Krug's... Uh, in the bird of prey uh, command center next to his chair. That was my arm was under the chair. You wouldn't understand, Matt, because you guys are. Uh, yeah, I have
0: no idea you're, you, what you're talking about. You know, about.
2: puppeteers are treated like royalty at the Muppets. <laughs> but I was <laughs> right. stuck, stuck under a chair. They cut a hole in the side. So my right arm went outside this hole and they had to put the dog on me. So I'm back up a little bit. So I'm cramped under looking at a monitor and just basically keeping him alive, panting and, you know, if there's an explosion, I, would you know, look up and, and just kind of do that. Um, which was fun because here I'm on the set working with Leonard Nimoy. I I, I think I said three, to, you know, he said three words to me about like move your hand or something. And we we weren't at all acquaintances. That I was just part of the crew, but he was nice. So then I storyboarded it and I designed the creatures for a movie called Cat's Eye, but. Carl Rambaldi was going to build it, so they didn't use. My, he didn't want to use my designs, but the director hired me because I got along with him. I get along with people. It turns out That's I cool. was learning about directing by working with the director directly, storyboarding, and then I went back to UCLA. So I did rock videos for about nine months with David Fincher. We did, uh, I think, four or five Rick Springfield ones. The most notable that has creatures in it, not necessarily puppets, was a Rick Springfield one called "Bop to You Drop." There's, I know that song. Yeah, Yep. There's an alien lizard king. That was me in that suit. There's a whole story about that. And there's some oh weird gosh. kind of bald uh, Frankenstein things with no face, just rotting teeth that I designed. And then Tony McVeigh, who I knew from who sculpted on Dark Crystal and worked on Jedi, uh, sculpted. Yeah, I know. It's just and again, this is all from 1981 to 1985 or 84. Um, so did the videos with Venture. Uh, did a couple motels videos, came back to LA to study computer graphics in the UCLA animation department because they now had a small burgeoning right. computer graphics department because working at ILM, particularly on something like uh, star Trek two and a little bit in three, the Genesis thing. I realized, Oh, special uh, computers are going to really change the face of special effects. <laughs> that was so prophetic. <laughs> really um, were. It really was. Uh, so I said, I'm going to go back and learn. Well, Again, my frustration was you're working with like Ataris or very, very simple computers where you're like, you know, you spend like three months making a ball go boom, boom. <laughs> I was like, it's cool, uh, but I was spoiled because, you know, I, they let me play with the, the supercomputer art stuff they were doing at ILM. Play me going in and just they wanted artists to use it to see how it was as an interface, the GUI as we call it. So while I was there... Uh one day the TA who was a really nice guy, Phil Denzel, came in and said, Hey, we just got a call. They're looking for an assistant for Leonard Nimoy for Star Trek Four. Uh, somebody who knows special effects and filmmaking and has like an artistic background. And I was like, Well present. Uh, I, I, watched, yeah, I that, worked that's I you. on Star Trek two II and three. I was on set with him on three, he wouldn't remember me, but so I went in and had an interview. We hit it off like a house on fire. Like I said, I get along with people. Um uh, I think because I have no shame. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's cool. Right. You know, I think. Yeah. Uh, my mom was an enthusiast, and I was raised enthusiasm is a natural state. And I'm always shocked when I meet people who are introverts, and you know, I'll say, yeah, this. You know, especially people giving a tour to like the Creature Shop, or just you know, they've come to visit a Muppet set. I'm like, oh, this, is – and they're kind of like, oh, cool. I'm like, oh my god! yeah. that were me, I'd be like, <laughs> that's so cool, you guys. So it is funny. I've, I've learned to be like, oh, they're not jerks. They just—it's
0: just inside. Kind of yeah, it's, it's, I it is. people
2: tell me, oh my god, my I was you know this close to like losing, becoming incontinent, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. I'm like, it's weird. So some people think showing your true. Inner feelings is embarrassing. Where for me, it's like, why wouldn't you? That's, and again, I that's credit part of who you are. I credit my mom with that because my dad was not an enthusiast. He wasn't. He was just very stern, or not stern. That he wasn't angry. He was just very. He was a lawyer, and he had that very, very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. He had a vocabulary like a, a, a scientist. He was a really smart man. Um, anyway, so I had that great combination of smart on one side, enthusiastic on the <laughs> other. So I'd get enthusiastic about smart things. Anyway um we hit it off and had a great time i mean star trek four uh, i remember the interview we had lunch and he asked me i you know he said what have you done i said well i've done these videos i worked on pretty much what i just spent the last whatever telling 45 minutes telling you and uh, i showed him a, the rock videos i'd done with david fincher i brought a vhs tape and i had pictures And i said well i did this and this was production designer and and he said and he asked me like well like do you, you know, are you are you a fan of Star? You know, Star Trek. I said, yeah, I grew up. I loved it as a kid. You know, I, I bought some of the novels. I, I wrote a letter to David Gerald when I was like thirteen because he he wrote the Trouble with Tribbles for you guys to yes. know. But uh, had a, a knowledge of Star Trek. New and and I just left ILM within a year. So he he said he'd been frustrated with uh, the special effects portion, particularly and some degree the art department on uh, Star Trek Three, his first directing uh, job. And so he said, I want someone on my team that I trust who will not lie to me because it's better for production. And wow. so I was per, I was literally genetically engineered for that job because I knew everyone at ILM. I knew where the skeletons were and, and who was like, you know, it's like, oh, they're hiring him. Yeah, he's never done that before. They've promoted don't him. He's a good guy, but and that happened with a couple people. But then like the art, you know, everybody I knew, I mean, was friends with. I mean, Christmas card friends with. <laughs> um, so but Leonard and I hit it off. He gave me so much responsibility. Again, I think I was twenty-three.
0: We're gonna hit pause on my talk with Kirk Thatcher for a minute because Come in. Father, may I come in? It's me, your oldest, Jack. Yeah, buddy, come in. What's What's up? I don't know. I'm feeling a bit melancholy today. I think the only thing that might cheer me up is... A fake ad? Father,
2: no, oh. no. Uh. Today, I think the only way to turn my frown upside down would be to hear about
0: some poor puppeteer getting hurt in the line of duty. Oh, oh. Okay, I, I know what you mean, Jack, and uh, I think, you know, I think it can help. So join me, won't you? Because it's time... For the injury corner. On this installment of Injury Corner, we're talking with Alice Deneen. Have you been injured? while on duty as a performer?
1: I have. What, what happened? Uh, I was right-handing for Bobo on Muppets from Space. Okay. And Bobo is enormous, oh, yeah. and and you have to kind of get in and under there along with him. And he's so big that he has these flexible uh, plastic bars that go from basically uh, a belt on Bill's waist up into Bobo, and they help take some of the weight. And when you're right handing for him, you're right up in there behind and hiding and down there, and one of those snapped oh. um, the one on the well, the one on the right one of the one cuz he's you know he's flexing that thing yeah. around and 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 moving it and you know, it's, it's it's under a lot of stress and it just broke and it just like it's like slapped me across the oh, face it was like no. <laughs> one of those one of those things oh. where it just was like this plastic rod just slapped, right oh. and it was So hard that I literally like saw stars. It was one of those times when you just think, "What just happened?" Like it's so fast that you don't understand what just happened. And I thought, "What did Bill just (laughs) do to me?" (laughs) Uh,
0: Did did it leave a mark Uh, or anything?
1: It left a red line for the rest of the day, but it didn't. It didn't cause any. You know, there was no. There was no blood. There was no permanent. uh, There was no lasting damage. But it was such a short, sharp blow that 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 like like you just. It's one of those things where you don't understand what happens and, like, your feelings are hurt. You're know, like, wait a minute. Well, I was doing my
0: job here.
1: I was just doing my, what, what you said to do. There have been times, uh. though, actually, this is an important public service yeah. announcement. If you're asked to do something dangerous on a puppet set, don't do it. It's okay
0: to say no, young puppeteers. Yeah, but like, what would be dangerous? What do you think, I mean, what's dangerous?
1: I was asked very politely, like, okay, here's where you're going to be set up. Will you lie down on the floor right here next to this elephant?
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay, now I get it. Uh, Like a real elephant, don't. A real elephant
1: yeah. and lying down, where you say with the puppet on and looking at a monitor in the other direction. Yeah. Like no, yeah,
0: or like here, that
1: thing just needs to shift its weight, and I'm yeah, uh,
0: I and mean, you're you're done, yeah. you're done for. But you don't want to get right. hurt,
1: right? No, you don't. Like, or we're gonna put you in this styrofoam box with just one hole in it that, to reach up through and do this puppet, and then all around you, we're gonna light candles. <laughs> like no, Wait, nope. did somebody ask that they would do that to you? Yeah, what? Wow.
0: Okay. <laughs> Well, that's kind of, that's, that's, you're right. That's a good PSA. It's a good, yeah, ju- that's my PSA. That's, good, good.
1: that's uh, that should go, that should be a writer along with yeah. Injury Corner. And also, yeah. It's like, don't yeah. do it. Just, it's okay. Yeah, so you've got your. Actually, Jim Martin taught me that. That it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no if you think something's dangerous. That's good. Really early
0: in my career. That's good. Yeah, yeah. it's okay to say no, and don't write hand bill as Bobo. Flap. <laughs> so how do you feel, Jack?
2: Lighter than air, happy as a mongoose. Life is such a sweet, sweet thing. The injuries of puppeteers are my life's nectar.
0: (laughs) That's kind of weird, Jack.
2: That may be, but at least I didn't have to hear a fake ad. Uh, Goodbye, Father.
0: We're back with Kirk Thatcher, and we were talking about his experiences working with Leonard Nimoy, who, of course, played Spock on Star Trek. And Leonard
2: said, I want to make you, um, I wanted to make you associate director, but uh, the DGA won't allow that. So are you okay with associate producer? I'm like, dude, you could call me (laughs) Skippy the Peanut Butter, boy. (laughs) I don't care what the title is. Thank you so much, but yeah, Yeah. that's great. Um, And I just, you know, I got to do so much stuff on that. You know, I got to play the punk, got to write and sing the song. Got to. Got, I wrote dialogue in the movie because they're like, You're, you have a head for that techie nerdy stuff. Do you want to run a bunch of... So I wrote all the stuff that the extras and the actors in the background are saying on Earth when the the water's crashing in and the planet's being inundated. And they're all going uh, some so levels at 38%. Uh, I had a whole story about New Atlantis, which was an undersea city. Oh, that my was, God. Yeah, and, and so that's what they're saying. And Michael Berryman is saying a lot of the junk. He's the alien with kind of the pointy head and the ears who looks really creepy yeah. and is there. So he, he said a lot of the dialogue I wrote, I wrote, uh, I wrote Vulcan work dialogue for the guys in the background. When the bird of prey, uh, when they're loading stuff and you hear Vulcans in the background going like, you whatever they're saying. And I said, I called Leonard it's a cross between Welsh and Hebrew. He said, yeah, perfect. I read it to him. He goes, yeah, yeah. Don't say that word, but the rest sounds good. Uh, Cause there wasn't the Klingon dictionary then or a Vulcan one. I don't think there is now. Um, I got to be the voice of the computer. I wrote all the questions that the computer asks him. Who said logic is the men of our civilization. First you send the chaos using the reason Our got correct. So I wrote them and then I recorded them to shoot for when they were shooting. Cause Leonard said, I have to respond. I can't just sit there and pretend to hear these questions. So we recorded and sped it up and we used that. And then when it came time to, you know, the sound guy said, what do you want to do for that? Do you want to cast somebody? He's like, "Yeah, just use that. Make it sound more computery. So they use my voice. <laughs> I don't get credit because, so Ralph Winter said, look, we're not going to give you credit for that. You have to join SAG because of the song, because of I Hate You, the song that punk was. So if you're a singer on a song and they use it in a movie, you have to join the Screen Actors Guild. Okay. Um, yeah. And so what's funny is I got, I got to be a member of SAG because of that, not because the actual thing where they use my dialogue that I wrote and recorded.
0: That's confusing. It, anyway, <laughs> Hollywood's a weird place. Hollywood's a weird, magical place. Uh, so, Star Trek was great. How amazing that you got to work on this film with Leonard Nimoy and he clearly trusted you. Yeah, and all my friends at ILM where I come back, I leave as a goofy,
2: mold-making creature guy, I come back as a producer. Um, yeah, it's, it's you know, and well, here's what's funny, the guy who was parking cars on Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ian Bryce, ended up being associate producer on Jedi and I think, you know, four years later was producing with Kathy and Frank Marshall. So it is a business when, and less so now because it's just kind of more, I would say focused and and people realize, but you know, you could go from making Xeroxes and getting coffee to being a a associate producer in two movies. Um, And it's all about trust. I mean, that's producing in and of itself or the production 95% of it is just doing is covering your behind, making sure things don't fall through the cracks and being responsible. So if someone says, go make six copies, you make eight copies because you know, someone's going to lose it. And so you, they, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Whereas, especially the director will lose it because he's always, <laughs> yeah. I speak from experience,
0: um, <laughs> putting it down here, putting it yeah, down exactly. there yeah, just, yeah, it in the
2: bathroom, whatever. And so, so it's just kind of going, all right, I'm going to do 110%. And then people go, Oh, that guy's great. So I trust him. So yeah, bump him up the ladder. Uh, and then if you're, an intelligent person who absorbs this stuff, you kind of go, okay, I see what you do and you do. So again, working on, I said my career went... It was <laughs> I started like on the biggest movie being made at the time which was, I mean the largest budget movie and now I do little TV specials huh? stuff <laughs> you know? so but you know what it's an ebb and flow yeah it was a good it was good training um <laughs> either way to see I mean no, like it's always easier to go big to small than small to big like if you worked on a, an eight person crew and someone goes okay now here's a 150 person crew so Star Trek was great Leonard was a fantastic we were friends until the end he, we we were emailing I think a week before he passed away and and, uh, it was a great loss and he, and, and then, so then I went from that to Jim Henson. Well, how did you do that? Well, again, it's <laughs> like, you know, being a garrulous, friendly person. When we were doing Star Trek four, uh, Ralph had looked at, the producers had looked at using other facilities aside from ILM. So they didn't feel like they were held over a barrel. Like, Oh, you weren't, you know, of course you to use ILM. So we're going to charge you where we charge. And it was a way to keep the budget down. So he had looked at other Facilities in one place was called Robert Abel & Associates, which had become Omnibus Abel, which had a huge computer to graphics division. You're going to love this. <laughs> so I met this gal who was like their uh, headhunter. She would go out and try and get jobs, and her name was BJ Rack. Lovely blonde yeah. lady, great sense of humor. We hit it off because she came and interviewed with to talk about Omnibus Abel, gave us a tour. Um, guess who her ex-husband was? Not Jim Hansen. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Bill Frawley the guy who directed the first Muppet movie. Oh. Yeah. Would she, she had like two or three kids with him. They were separated. So she and I would go out and have drinks and have lunch. And we started, she would bring me to these things to kind of be her fantastic you know, production designer. We just have fun. So we became friends. And I was developing my own shows at this point with puppets and some special, you know, creatures and stuff like, like I do. And so I showed her these creatures and gave her the pitch. And she said, you know, who would love this is uh, Jim Henson. I said, well, you know jim hens she said yeah my husband was jim Frawley, directed the first month of movie. we're friends she said I'll, I'll i'll put you in touch with him so she did so i met jim it sounds like it was i think it was summer of 86 or summer of 87 sometime around there and i think it was 86 so i met him he came out to la for meetings and stuff and he was at he had just done labyrinth and it had not done well and he was slightly demoralized I learned later. I didn't couldn't tell from my meeting with him. We had lunch, and he was at the Beller Hotel, and then we went back to his bungalow, and I showed him a bunch of drawings and stuff I'd done, and I pitched him the show, and again, got along great. We had very similar childhoods in that he was raised in a Christian science, as was I, so that was kind of—it's it's not a crazy cult, or some people think it is, but it's just a way of thinking, and, and so he and I kind of looked at the world in a similar way. And, you know, I said, look, man, I grew up with Sesame Street, and I love the Muppets, and I love the Land of Gorch. I think he was surprised. And I asked him, because I couldn't uh, it, it aired once, the uh, Santa Claus switch. That hit me between – like, I love that so much. I'm like, you made this thing with Art Carney. He goes, oh, the Santa Claus switch. I said, I love that. He's like, well, that's where Gonzo came from. I'm like, okay, cool, you know. and, and <laughs> So I think that might have helped that I do some deep cuts back then when, you know, you couldn't look Google it or watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, long story short, he said, I'd like, you know, he called me. (laughs) It was funny. My mom answered the phone about three weeks later. And she was like, Oh, this is Jim Henson. It was Kirkpatrick there. And so my mom went, I'm sorry, who is this? She goes, It's it's Jim Henson. And she went, Oh, okay, Jim Henson. She thought it was one of my friends because we'd call (laughs) each other like Yoda or whatever. (laughs) So she goes, Honey, it's Jim Henson on the phone. I was like, Wait, seriously? She's like, (laughs) <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but that's probably not. not. She has a phone and was like, oh, hello? I was like, oh, hey, Kirk. I was like, you know. So that's it was Jeff, really <laughs> And he wanted to hire me to work on a, on this project that he was developing as a concept artist. So I did. I flew out to New York, I think, for two meetings. And then I'd go home and do a bunch of drawings and then <laughs> FedEx them or whatever it was back then <laughs> to, to New York. And I uh, worked with Michael Frith. I met Jerry Jewell. And these, the, uh, Bill Prady was there who went on to create Big Bang Theory and Frank, well, Frank really wasn't in these meetings. These were kind of conceptual meetings. Frank was off being a movie director at that point. Um, yeah. So I started working long distance. I think he flew me out like four to six times over the next year. And then in the fall of 87, they sold the Jim Henson hour and they asked, I'd be interested. And I said, yeah, but you know, you're going to have to move me out to New York and they helped me find an apartment in the Upper East Side. And so I started working in the puppet shop. They they didn't have me in uh, one seventeen, they had me in the puppet shop because Jim wanted me there. He felt there was a friction between he and the shop, and the shop felt like they were the I mean they even described themselves, I forgot if it was Eddie Christie or one of them was like, We're the you know, we're the ex-wife, or we're the you know, we're the redheaded stepchild. They just felt like Jim didn't really spend a lot of time with them. He just kinda went, Oh, here's the next order, you know, make these. So I think he was putting me there as a, I don't know, a, a go-between. Because I did that a lot. with Like Leonard, I was kind of between the, the mm-hmm. making world. And so, so What I, kind of
0: things? What, what were you doing there? Just uh, designing,
2: uh, were... and I, I was an idea guy. So I would just draw stuff up. One of the things was Waldo, see graphic, mm-hmm. starting on that because I'd had some computer experience. Literally, like, I was there for a week, and he had this big costume ball, which people have talked about. Right. And so his date was a friend of mine, a, gal, a little gal named Daryl Hannah. Yes. who i met doing groundlings classes in la groundlings had daryl and her sister uh Paige, had been in my groundlings class so i show up at this thing i'd made a, a puss in boots costume which was a cat face and i wore like a renaissance shirt or something and uh and there was daryl like daryl and i think <laughs> i think that blew everyone's <laughs> mind even jim was like oh yeah daryl you know because she was a big star at that point uh this was you know four years after splash had come out i think um, and so suddenly I was the guy from LA with, you know, long, I had really, I was hair longer than it was now. And, and I was friends with Daryl Hannah. And so this, this kind of aura, I guess, cause I didn't realize, I just thought, Oh, Daryl, you know, I, I didn't look at it from outside my own perspective, but anyway, I worked in the shop. I had a table. Uh, there's a picture of me somewhere with my long flowing hair, clean shaven. I looked like Farrah Fawcett. If she had taping <laughs> hormones, um, like a five o'clock shadow uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, and worked on the Jim Henson hour uh, designing characters and idea stuff. I helped, uh, Jim and I came up with the opening with the, the he said, well, we have a Griffin and we have a white lion. <laughs> He's really like, we have this cool stuff in London. We have a Griffin, we have a white lion. We have, you know, some devils, uh, all the stuff that he'd been making on, um, uh, the storyteller yeah so i became like his idea guy uh we would just have meetings have lunch talk about stuff i go and draw i flew to new York, uh flew to london with him and stayed at his house um I stayed at the house in the Hampstead, and we would uh, to meet the creature shop and work with them um that's where i met brian just briefly uh he was at the creature shop there he was doing working on a uh, storyteller and a little bit i think on um fafner hall i think that was happening then Anyway, so I met the, the London Creature Shop guys and became friendly with them. They're lovely guys and just worked with Jim on that. I moved to Toronto or was put up in Toronto for probably almost six or seven months off and on where we shot uh, the Jim Henson Hour. And it was frustrating. I remember Rita Perugia and Martin Baker were there and Jim seemed distracted. Uh, he was trying to get other stuff going and the writers, he wasn't giving a really strong direction was the impression I was getting from people who worked with him for years. Um, it wasn't like he was flaky. I think he was just maybe spread a little thin cause you know, he's running a company in LA and London. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Know, doing doing a lot. He's doing a lot. One. And, uh, and I think the writers weren't sure what they were supposed to do. Cause it wasn't the Muppet show. Jim had done this thing called inner tube TV mm-hmm. and he really liked that. When I met him, he had just done that and he showed it to me and, and he showed me kind of the designs where the designs were going and so I started designing things for this show. Waldo was the main one that I did. That, uh, I designed a bunch of them. Leon the Chameleon, uh, the little girl um, who looked like a cutesy little Hummel doll. But the idea was she would turn into this horrible monster when she was angry. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, there was a Kiwi and this like blue bird lady who were a reporting team. I did a bunch of designs. A Clifford. Oh, jeez. A ton of characters in that. And I would say at least half of them were... Something I concocted with the writers. But there was kind of a disparity with the writers and the puppeteers, and there was more Canadian puppeteers who, uh, Gord Robertson and Robbie Mills, who were great. I mean, they're all lovely, but it was just kind of thrown together. I remember it was mainly Rita and Martin who were saying, This isn't how it normally goes. Like there was, and, and they'd probably be better to tell you what wasn't working. I was just having a ball, I'm designing, I'm hanging out with Jim Henson, living in a nice hotel watching production and then just going out every night dancing. Cause I didn't have a real job. I mean, my <laughs> job was be creative. Yeah. Go, be creative. Go, go. And so I started sketching their sketches. I did caricatures of Rita and Martin and everyone's just screaming. Cause they were frustrated and I didn't get it. I thought it was funny. You know, I was probably a jerk. I was I thought it was funny, but they were frustrated. Um, and then the second half of it was, uh, like uh, they were storytellers. And then I got to do my first little directing bit was doing some second unit on lighthouse Island. What's that one? The guy who dates a mermaid, who falls in love with a mermaid, and then he mermaid. becomes a mermaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was quirky. It was Jerry Jewell's pet project. It got kind of beat up uh, by the network and what they would like to what they didn't like. I remember Jerry was frustrated. But we shot that, and I did second-unit things of the mermaid, and the, there's a creature that comes out of the water, and there's a bird that flies out of the sky. And it was, it, it was sort of this guy and this girl. It's Star-Crossed Lovers, and I think she's a mermaid, and, and he isn't... It was quirky. It wasn't... It didn't come out the way they intended. I think the whole show did not come out the way they intended. And I think what was the the great part of it was the storytellers and what the we, Jim got, um, you know, they had screenings or testings at NBC and they said, everyone thinks it's Shakespeare. Like they, they, they Americans don't like that. And this is gorgeous things that are beautiful with amazing creatures. And they're like, yeah, it just didn't really sell in the U S so it got canceled after one season. So I'd been there almost a year to the day when, when we found out it was canceled and so jim was like you know i'd love you to stay and just keep doing what you're doing i said oh, you know i don't want to take your money like if you don't have a job i'm so used to, <laughs> stupid so used to get caught he's like dude i don't want to take money yeah. from you uh and 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 there's stuff going on in la that i want to do and just you know hire me back when we sell another thing so i moved back to la almost immediately i went up north uh worked on robocop 2 designing uh kane's brain box the thing that holds his brain in the the tube when he's floating in a tube and he's just eyeballs in a spine and a brain. I designed and built and designed and built the brain thing in the tube. I designed and started to build. And then I broke my hand doing tests for smashing the brain box on the ground <laughs> back to LA <laughs> Phil Tippett was doing. So I was working in Phil Tippett shop, not Robo teens. And then I got a job at, as a freelancer at Disney Imagineering designing to work on a redesign for Tomorrowland. They wanted to turn the carousel progress into a crashed alien spaceship so they wanted all these alien designs. So with my background, uh, I got in there and brought in Tony McVeigh as a designer and sculptor and worked on that. Gosh, for about eight or nine months. And during that time, I would, Jim flew me out twice to meet with him on dinosaurs. So the first time was, let's just talk about it, have lunch, hang out for a couple of days, brainstorm it. Um, so we did. And then I went back home, did a bunch of drawings, flew out again. So this was like May, you know, where this is heading uh, of 1990. Had a meeting with him on a Friday and kind of went through the drawings and I like this, move this, you know, with this fun. And we just spitball ideas. So, uh, that was great. Had lunch with him, hung out a little bit just to shoot the breeze, find out about life, what's going on. Um, well, the Disney deal is happening. So in fact, at Imagineering, I'd done some consulting on Muppet rides because I was the local Muppet guy and I'd worked with them and knew him. So, uh, I did some, um, just basically, Hey, what do you think of this? So he was very busy with that. So that's probably the other thing we talked about. Now that I think about it, uh, decided to stay the week cause I was done on Friday, decided to stay the weekend, just pay for the hotel room so I could see friends. Cause I just moved from New York a year earlier, flew home on Monday. So the New York LA time thing, I got home Monday night and I think Tuesday morning, Kevin clash called me. Yeah, it was Tuesday morning at like six in the morning LA time. I pick up the phone, not expecting you know a phone call and that early. And it's Kevin. He's like, Hey Kurt. I was like, Hey Kev, what's up? He's like, are you sitting down? I was like, Yeah, well, I'm laying down in bed. It's like Jim. Jim died last night, and you know, suddenly your tone goes, wait, wait, what? I thought he'd been in a car accident. I said, What? I just saw him on Friday. Like, I mean, you know, he said we don't know. It's this thing. They said it's some kind of pneumonia. So I literally just my suitcase barely was unpacked. I just threw everything back in, booked a plane back when you could book a plane and walk onto it, and flew back to New York, and I was there for about ten days, staying with uh, uh, David Kissinger, Alex's. Uh, boyfriend at the time and, uh, just was involved in all the ceremonies and just kind of everyone had to come together. Like there was no plan. It was just, we all had to people from London. We were all just there, you know? So that was surreal. It was kind of amazing. And it was such an outpouring of, I mean, you know, the way Jim ran the company was you worked with him and I've said this and other people have, you never worked for him. So it was like a family reunion that you never wanted to go to for that, or at least for that reason. But it was amazing yeah. just the love and the support and everyone just kind of connecting all around this guy that we'd, and some of them hadn't worked with them since like the early seven, you know, there were people there who hadn't worked with them for 20 years, but writers from the Muppet show in England were there. Um, I met a bunch of people I'd heard about and never met. And so it was amazing and, and awful, you know, it was just that, it was just that kind of all emotions running at once. So you can't say it was sad. Obviously it was sad, but it was also amazing and great. And, you know, and, and we all pulled together and put together this, uh, memorial service in five days. And, and, uh, yeah, it was horrible and wonderful. And then we sold dinosaurs and then, and then like go back to LA and the Disney deal was still going at that point. And ABC was part of Disney. And so, uh, we went in and pitched dinosaurs. I had done, uh full they brought in uh two writers sorry uh bob young and uh, michael jacobs and they worked with uh, alex rockwell and i was jim's assistant and kind of development person and we banged out the idea for the show they started writing and i started designing so i did a bunch of i think eight or nine full color renderings and we went and pitched it and i think by that early summer june maybe we sold it. I mean we, I mean, we walked in the room with Martin and Brian and Michael and you know, like in Alex. I think there was like 10 of us. And we did this whole dog and pony show. And Michael pitched the show. And I held up the drawings. And we talked about how Brian was like, here's how we do it, using the Teen Ninja
0: technology. And, and we, so they bought it in the room. They went, okay, great. We want to do this. And we we're like. <laughs> they bought it in the room. And now room. you've done a lot of pitches. After the fact. H- before, how many pitches have you done where they bought it in the room?
2: Oh that's like saying i won the first lottery ticket i bought i won no it, it never happened <laughs> i know mean, a unicorn that there's stories of it everyone has their i sold it in the room but this thing was we sold a thing that we had never done and in my we i mean the company they'd done ninja turtles but that was a movie shoot where yeah. you could be down for half a day and like well so these things had to work so i remember martin baker and i were walking out and i look at him like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> we' have to do this we're all kind of like, okay, it. it was terrifying and, and you know we're still reeling from gym passing so I uh, went to London. They just said, okay, you're gonna be in London for six weeks and I went through the sculpts and starting the fabrication and just was the designer, you know off the designs and, and worked with the guys there who I now I'd known not as well as I got to know, them. did the dinosaurs, got them all shipped up, came back to LA. And they, then Michael Jacobs said, you should be a writer on the show. You have great ideas. Because I'd been an idea guy, and I'd written stuff but never for you know, someone else, just my own. I'd written lots of outlines for movie ideas. So they made me a writer. So I joined the WGA and and got my Writer's Guild card and became a co-producer on it, I think my title was, uh, and and wrote a bunch of stories. I co-wrote two or three with my friends Tim Doyle and Andy Goodman. And then what was great was, in a way – the last episode was my episode, but I didn't pitch it as a last episode. The idea was, and this is in the real world, when you destroy a habitat, if it's a breeding ground for any kind of species, whether it's an insect or a mammal, uh, you can pretty much create like genocide. You know, you just, they don't have a place to breed and that's where their brains are. And so it's not like they couldn't go breed somewhere else, but they don't because that's how they've been programmed for a million years this is where they are. So the idea was these bunch beetles came like there were these two drunk shriners like, all right, we're at a party and, and no one else showed up and then they didn't know what happened. So they're like these two idiot bachelors who were like ready to breed. And, and then like a few days later, this, this, this basically kudzu like plant started taking over and it turned out, well, the beetles ate the plant. So when the beetles aren't there, the plant, so then they go, well, we have to fumigate the plant. And so they do whatever they do with toxic stuff, which then, and it just keeps snowballing. And so while I pitched that story, it came out that we were going to be canceled. And so, the way the writers room work is you would pitch your story and then they kind of the whole room would attack it and tear it apart and rebuild it. And so they said, "Well, why don't we make this it it Earl and trying to fix it? It escalates to basically making a type of nuclear winter, and so that's where it went. So I, I used to joke, well, I got to create them, so I got to kill him, uh, but they don't <laughs> die. You could do a reboot because people are like, oh, was. I mean, all these people now who are in their like mid thirties, like, oh my god, that was so traumatic that bl- like totally killed me as a kid. Like, you, what? And I said, well, we didn't. So them dying. They just said, "Hey, we've been around for millions of years. You know what could possibly go wrong?" Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, but it did exactly what it was intended. When Jim was brainstorming it, it's adolescent, you know. I mean, that show was yeah. kind of heavy-handed sometimes, uh, you know, in a fun way, but about elder abuse and drug usage and politics. I remember we did a two-part special called "Nuts to War," and uh, "War" stands for "We Are Right."
0: And so, uh, <laughs> such a great, you know, Steve. Well, what's great is that it's on Disney Plus now. Yes, it's
2: yes, it's on Disney Plus. And, and what's even sadder? What's great is that's great. Sad part is all those stories are still. Most of them are, are yeah, so relevant, still relevant. In fact, some of them even more relevant. You know, in the last twenty. I mean, since the show went off the air, some of them become yeah
0: more relevant. More I can well.
2: We did a sexual harassment thing what's harassment
0: what sexual yes, harassment
2: yeah. so it's funny so at that point in my life as a writer I was not interested in telling teaching a valuable lesson or even doing a a, a um, social commentary I wanted to have fun with what it's like to be a dinosaur and have so my first episode was called or that I wrote it's called When Food Goes Bad which I wrote with Tim Doyle. And the joke was there's living food in the refrigerator. Like how is that not a story? So the food You know, the joke is the food is revolting. I know. If you knew how to cook, it'd be better. Um, And so that's the stuff I like kind of. And I kept, it's funny. So that first year I kept saying, why do we have to do a story about politics or socialism? Can't we, why can't we just do a show about nothing? We've got dinosaurs with living things in the fridge. Does it have to be just like a day in the life? I kept pitching. "Let's, Let's do a show about nothing. Like the little details. No, that'll never work. Like a year later, Seinfeld came out. The show about nothing. You know, about Jerry, I'm telling you, this sandwich is different. And that was really the show about nothing. nothing. Yeah, they did a great show about nothing. <laughs> and and I, as I matured as a writer, I understood that if you've got to do about a show about nothing, it has to be about the minutia that everyone can relate to. I still think we could have done it with dinosaurs. But I think it's, you know, as they sometimes say, a hat on a hat. Uh, so I, I still posit that it was possible. And I, I did like how they created Halloween, Little Boy Boo. Uh, potty training with Annie Goodwin, which is really funny. So I focus on just the absurdity of dinosaurs living a, a sitcom or so.
0: And I think if you're in a writer's room and you have a bunch of writers in there, yeah. and you, you know, everybody has their own, f- uh, what's in their wheelhouse, what they're really good at. And yeah, I wasn't browbeat for that. I just think that the
2: majority of them were much more politically minded than, I'm much, I'm much more that way now after the last few years of, of, of where the country was going. And I actually kind of, it's not that I wasn't aware of it. I just thought, well. Who cares what I think? I still don't think people care what I think, and they shouldn't. But uh, I, I got more uh, political in my opinions. I, say. I still probably would write a show about nothing because, again, I think if we're doing a show with talking animals, maybe it's not the best way to convince somebody. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> and Who knows? Well, that's the great thing about puppets, which you obviously know well, uh, is that you can use them as a metaphor, just like you can mm-hmm. animation, but the the physicality of puppets – Brings a certain uh, relatability, I think. As long as you're not trying to make them look human, that's deadly. Uh, Yeah, the uncanny valley thing. But um, yeah, so that was dinosaurs. So I was on that for three and a half
0: years, and And not long after that, it's Muppet Muppet Treasure. Uh, No, Muppet Muppet Treasure Island. Island. Oh, right, that's right. You co-wrote that. Yes,
2: Muppet. It was my idea to do that story, so I, I kind of sold it. Because So A Christmas Carol came out, and they went, wow, this did really well. The Muppets weren't being the Muppets. They were playing characters, which I loved. They said, that to me is like Monty Python. They did Life of Brian. They did uh, Holy Grail. Like, So we started saying, yes, a Christmas Carol was well-received. What else could we do? So I remember the two big contenders were a King Arthur story and a, a, I said, let's do a pirate movie, a big swashbuckling pirate thing. And, and, and so the only one that everyone knew that was public domain, obviously, was Treasure Island. And so I pitched it as this kind of nutsy thing where it starts out like Treasure Island and ends up like a, road, a Hope and Crosby road picture with angry <laughs> natives and giant tiki statues and lo- volcanoes blowing up. And kind of the Muppets saying, this isn't in the book, this isn't in the book. Um, <laughs> and so we sold the idea t- internally. And then Jerry, and I think then they, I was not involved, but Brian and Alex, whatever, pitched it to Alex Rockwell and Brian Henson, sorry, <laughs> I just used first names, Yeah, yeah. Uh, pitched it to Disney because they now had this deal after... Christmas Carol with Disney and, and Katzenberg was in charge of that. So Disney said, "Yeah, that sounds good." So I got to go live with Jerry Jewell for three months, and I moved up to. I didn't live at his house; I lived in Mendocino, rented a place in Mendocino, and go to his house every day. And we wrote Muppet uh, Treasure Island, and that was great. I've been friends with Jerry since the day I met him. I mean, he's just a lovely guy and super nice and just very affable. I think he's one of the kindest, most affable people. And his name, Yule, is Christmas in Dutch. So his name was that. Jerry Christmas, I used to call Jerry Jerry him. Christ- and, you know, he talked like this. He yeah, had this very kind of Orson bean oh, okay, ah. <laughs> like voice. His, like his greeting, like it, it, it's funny, they live in my head, you know, Leonard, Jerry, Jim Jim Henson. You know, but Jerry's greeting, Jerry's greeting was always, ah, hello there. This is kind of musical. <laughs> and he'd been a puppet nerd, it turned out, since the first guy Jim Henson hired. Like a Bay Area guy, huge Muppet fan, you know, not Muppet fan, puppet Muppet creator. And he'd been a puppeteer. So he'd been with Jim since the beginning. And he was just a treasure trove of stories and just how to write for the puppets and what's key to making them, how they click, what's their obsession, what's their their fear, uh, you know, how they relate to each other. And so we just had a blast. I had a blast. He was very tolerant. But... The the working method because we were in his office he would sit at the computer and I would lay on the couch or pace <laughs> and I just jump into character and like you know so I mean I, I take a lot of credit for a lot of the not like Billy Connolly was my uh, we wrote it for Billy Connolly said so it has to be Billy Connolly going back to my Anglophile comedy yeah. love um, and his name was Billy Bones so we wrote him with a Scottish accent and just great uh, yeah uh, so great in that and, and just the silliness you know uh, the the laundry list of. You know, old Tom dead. Really, old Tom dead. Tom. Oh, all that's me. Great. All the silliness is very me, and that's <laughs> what I loved about the Muppets. You could tell a story with just and have these slightly, you know, and Polly Lobster. find your Lobster, never see. Um, yeah. So all that nonsense came from me, and and all the kind of character stuff came from Jerry. Um, so we were good we were a good team, uh, much like Jim Lewis and I were afterwards, because, you know, I. <laughs> I, I, not that I don't have a heart, but I just I love the absurdity, as we you know talked about early on, the absurdity of the premise of a talking pig and a frog and and doing <laughs> classic stories with them. Uh, so we had a blast. We wrote it. Uh, they, we got notes. We rewrote it. Uh, they hired James V. Hart, who was known for taking classic literature and turning it into movies. He came in and kind of took it back to, especially the second act, uh, more of the original Treasure Island. Uh, story. And then Jerry and I had the final crack at it to make it silly again. Cause he made it a little too, like I kept saying like this <laughs> kids aren't going to go see this to learn a thing about loyalty and all that. That's, that's there. <laughs> but I mean, that's uh, like cabin fever was totally me. So, so, cause in the book they hit the, like, I think it's called cloud and irons where there's just no wind and they're sitting in the middle of the Atlantic ocean nothing's happening and i said you know you get like cabin fever and i said oh what if we did this thing where they kind of go nuts and then the amazing barry and cynthia barry man and cynthia Weil, who they hired to write the song oh my god they brought so much still my favorite muppet music outside of the first one outside of a rainbow connection and and,
0: and that's a, it's an insane number that that number you know, in particular so, so that was
2: all me writing gags it's like grind crazy brian's like, brian's like you gotta figure out what i don't know what to do with this i'm like all right So, you know, just wrote all the silly stuff that happened because we didn't have a song, so we couldn't write gags for something to exist. We just said they go crazy and they do a Carmen Miranda number, you know. And so Barry and Cynthia wrote the song and then I came in and just wrote all the gags for it, like knowing what we had with puppets, which was great. And it was so fun to be on that set. Those sets were amazing. Those was the biggest Muppet sets they'd ever made. We, we, and that, we that ship was ship. real, right? Yeah. That was an actual it was a three ship, that... ship. That was on a gimbal in a real like lake they made in the soundstage or pond, you know, vinyl lined pond. So it was real water and we had uh, giant wind machines to blow the sails. Uh so that was amazing. And then yes, about so came back, that did well, was well received, and then started working on Muppets Tonight, which was a new version of the Muppet Show. Again, this is where Bill Baretta Bill Baretta had been on dinosaurs as a suit performer. And he and Brian had been buddies since high school. Uh, and so I don't know if Brian suggested or Bill wanted to do it, but he was like really working at becoming a puppeteer. And thank God, because he did some of uh, still my favorite new characters, Bobo and Pepe in particular, um, uh, just so fun. Because they're the thing at this point, and this is my opinion, the Muppets had gotten too precious. I said it was like Mickey and Minnie after the first 20 years like mickey was just you know literally cut his balls off and he's like oh, hi everybody oh let's have a great day you know and you're like okay it's it's cute but yeah. what is there and and they'd gotten so much about the sweetness and I, again it came from development people who are like yeah but what's you know i want that moment i remember we had a development executive who was like i want that moment in the muppet movie where you cry i go this is the last thing you want in a muppet movie <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make people cry. I want to make them laugh. I mean, laugh. I mean a heartfelt moment is fine, but it has to be has to be earned. You, you can't. You have to earn it. Yeah, yeah, it Can't be false. It can't be like, oh, and his dog died. I mean, you know. Uh, so, I was very happy to to do. Let's get back to sketch comedy. So that's what Muppets Tonight was. And again, we had a great, great, uh, great guest stars and a great group of performers. Uh, and then I went off and wrote with Jerry's blessing, uh, Muppets in Space which was a parody of, of, it was sort of like, well, it was a parody of Star Wars, Star Trek, and, and space movies in general. And uh, it was before Galaxy Quest, and it was interesting, because Katzenberg, Galaxy Quest was DreamWorks, he'd read my script, and Disney had greenlit it, and my movie had the same ending as theirs, where there was a button you would push on the spaceship, and it would send you back in time 30 seconds. And that showed up in Galaxy Quest. How many years later? And I was so angry because like he stole my idea. Anyway, yeah. so I wrote that, and Disney was going to make it. And then Disney sold—sorry, Muppets sold to Sony. Not sold, but made. A, they changed their deal from a distribution deal from Disney to Sony. And Sony wanted to make Jerry's uh, Muppets. It was, ended up calling Muppets from Space, but originally it's called Star Gonzos. And so I did it. Yeah. So they hired me to do rewrites while they were filming on that. It was done in North Carolina, and. Uh, and I saw, I was there and they were going, getting behind the schedule cause it was a big Epic movie. So they brought me into direct second unit. So that's where I got my DGA card. So that was, I think 1999 that kind of launched my directing Muppets for things other than little shorts.
0: Uh, and you've done a lot of oh, Muppet was, projects. Yeah. You've done, you did uh, Muppets wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, Very merry Muppet Christmas. Muppets wizard of, wizard of,
2: and Muppets wizard of Oz, uh, Muppets letters of Santa. A bunch of the viral videos,
0: Bohemian, oh, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, In, uh, including Bohemian Rhapsody, which, yeah. by the way, I checked today. Like an that movie. was that's 11, 11 years old. You yeah. do you know that? Uh, and it has a hundred and seven million yeah. views.
2: What's amazing is it's actually more because there's like other channels. I know. So, so it's like one hundred twenty yeah. million people have seen it. And I'm so glad I get a dollar for every time.
0: I know. Wouldn't that great? I think
2: like 50, 48 Oh, yeah. Yeah, so sure. We just no. do this for fun, folks. We're yeah. multi, multi hundredaires.
0: More in a minute with Kirk Thatcher. But first, we're going to ask a puppeteer about not puppets. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. On today's Ask a Puppeteer About Not Puppets, we're talking with Julianne Busher. Julianne. Yes? In nature,
1: mm.
0: what... If anything scares you the most?
1: Uh this might not be natural but the thing that horrifies me the most are sh- gigantic ships under the sea. Horrifying. Uh, I I I don't know why. Horrifying.
0: You mean like ship shipwreck ships?
1: Yes. Yes. Cannot handle it.
0: So, have you seen them? Or just uh, the idea of them.
1: I think it's just the idea of them, but I cannot go near giant ships in shipyards, um, and I cannot go near the big wooden um, maiden heads. That's, you know, so I think they were yeah. in, in um, Melbourne. I think there's like a row of them in town. Cannot go near them. I have no idea. Too scary. Ah, I don't get it.
0: I don't Too get scary. It. Okay, that's good.
1: Isn't that weird? I I don't know.
0: That's not weird. No, I mean, I think there's, I think that's, I mean, I wonder what that stems from. I wonder where it comes from. Yeah. But that's a very cool answer. Now back with Kirk Thatcher. Let me ask you this, Kirk. What do you think makes a good director for The Muppets? (laughs) Patience.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not with the performers, with the process. It's. It's funny, and this frustrates me no end. People are like, oh, you've got to get like, oh, you're a puppet director. That's like saying, oh, you directed Star Wars. Because mm-hmm. everything is a special effect. There is no easy shots unless you're working with people and it's a person sitting in a chair. Okay, that's our easy shot. Everything else, especially now with green screen and all that. Uh, so patience, understanding physics, understanding <laughs> what a puppet can and can't do, and... Uh, it's probably why i do more a lot of writing because i they just say well he knows you know i always say a puppet running down the stairs picking up the phone or picking up the phone dialing and talking a person you just that's a single setup So a puppet that's probably fork five cuts um uh and a special set and all that and a special phone and and so i think a patience with the process b and maybe this is more important understanding what like i said a puppeteer can do i was on a Crazy show in Iceland called Lazy Town for the. Mm-hmm. They brought me in to do the pilot episode and the, well, the first episode, and they wanted me to keep me for like 15 episodes, but it was insane. And one of the biggest problems was their DP, well, ultimately was fired after I left because I kept saying, he's your problem. He didn't, he kept saying, if you could just, if you could just, <laughs> if you could just hold <laughs> if you could your just, head down more. I, I finally had to yell yes. at him because he's like, I can't, I can't do this. I said, Carl, his yep. name is Carla. I said, this distance from their elbow to their hand is not going to get longer. It doesn't matter where they put their head. It's attached yeah. to their shoulders. They're not. They're not giraffes. Like, it's. It's not. And he just would be so frustrated. I said, it's going to be, you know, if we're lucky, just below your chest shot, especially wide shots. And I said, but he goes, oh, there's all that headroom. I said, yeah, welcome to puppets. It's, like, that's it's just a different way of different way framing. And what's it's funny different. is I kept saying is like, well, nobody cares. Name any movie where you say. Except a Gene Kelly movie, like oh, didn't you love those their knees in the shot? Isn't that great? But no one cares about what you're doing from the waist down unless it's a porn film. So that's why the Muppets work, even though they float. You know, a a Muppet floats around here. Which if you, I always wanted to do a gag where Kermit and an actor are you know walking down the street, and you cut to a wide shot, and Kermit's on stilts. It's just you know that's how we, yeah that's how they do it like we just never we never show it but yeah the Muppets basically put on stilts to walk around as they talk to humans because right conceptually you're like there's no way that would work in fact it was really creepy when they did the ads for the Muppets the new series they did on ABC mm-hmm. where they showed them like in a subway station and you realize they're all like you know 18 to 26 inches tall and it looked creepy and I'm like why are you doing that like what and they're like oh because we want to show that they're in the real world I'm like yeah but you kind of <laughs> It gives,
0: it doesn't work. It doesn't, for Something me. doesn't work. I thought it was unappealing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. And you, you've also directed projects and commercials and things like that outside of Muppets.
2: Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, the main thing I did um, was the Christine McConnell series for Netflix, uh, The Curious Creations of Christine McConnell. So she was this uh, Instagram sensation, and they brought me in to make a show around her. So I did. Worked with her and the creature shop at Henson's, which was great. And uh, we did it for a dollar. That show was amazing. What we did for so little money, because they at Netflix they said, "Oh, it's a reality show," and they budgeted it. And I didn't. I couldn't get credit as showrunner and director and writer. I wrote four of the six episodes because it was a reality show, so it couldn't have a director and writer. Right. So I'm executive producer along with like five other people, which was galling, but whatever. I just tell people it's it's not like, and they only ran it for one season. Um, But it was great. I got to work with great performers, some of the newer puppeteers in the L.A. area. Um, I mean, the big standout, I think, was um, Rose, who was puppeteered by uh, Colleen Smith, who just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's so many good. The the thing is about the Muppets is, and and this frustrates me again, is growing the brand is is not give each of you guys seven characters to do. It's let's get some of this really good talent in here uh, to make new characters like we did on Muppets Tonight. And uh, yeah. now that you guys have sort of grown into the main characters, well you're doing um, you know, you can talk about what you right, that's not a secret. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's not a secret. Doing um, uh, Fleet Scribbler, which you know, that new series yeah. that we're doing. <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh, oh, that's oh we shouldn't announced that's we're not yeah we're fleet, we're too, fleet scribblers oh. access hollywood is not yeah, it's not been oh man
0: i'll cut that out yeah cut I'm, that I'll, out. I'll cut it out i'll anyway, cut it out it'll be kind of anyway your fleet
2: was uh, great your kermit's really good yeah,
0: i really oh yeah, that's very and, kind and, of and
2: i do i have to say and nobody appreciates what you have to go through with the fans kermit doesn't sound like i love now there's 30 year olds going does not like kermit because he was stig whitmire doing kermit <laughs> you don't right. sound like steve kermit you this is a different kermit. It's like yeah
0: Welcome it's, to reality. That's, like it, that's how things work. Yeah. Well,
2: and people have asked me why don't they hire a mimic? I said because that's not how it works. And, that, and that, yeah. one thing I was I alluded to earlier, and one thing that is really different, and I think especially the way Hollywood, particularly TV, works, is the the puppeteers are the characters. It's like you don't hire someone to be John Cleese. You don't say, "Oh, we're going to do an awesome power movie," and you know, and. Um, We've got Jack Black's going to be Austin Powers, <laughs> but <laughs> right. that's how Hollywood thinks of the Muppets. Oh, oh, we got you know. So we'll get a guy to do the voice, and we'll get one of these kids out of college to do the puppeteering. The puppeteering I understand because my own experience was I just thought you know this worked hey, everybody, and then you start working with the Muppets and you realize and you watch people like Jim and and Steve Whitmire and you and just the, these guys are so good. I, the thing that caught me was probably in the early nineties watching whatever we were shooting. And I saw a puppet think, and I think it was Steve doing Kermit, but, and it wasn't just thinking he was, Hmm, uh, just subtle. And you're like, it, 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 it made sense to me why, why the company was so precious with good puppeteering as opposed to anyone who can go like hey everybody how's it going
0: i know um, just flap your mouth around flap your mouth yeah, around
2: and, and but people are not sophisticated i wasn't i was a puppeteer and a puppet fan i wasn't sophisticated enough it's like i know guys who can play the guitar but then you hear you know someone play a, you know what's his name a segovia you're like oh <laughs> I, mean, I know yeah i worked on a great show last year created by a buddy of mine tim doyle from dinosaurs he did a show called the kids are all right incredibly smart show very nuanced eight, uh, a fan, like Irish Catholic family in LA with eight boys and, and and the nightmare of that, but it was subtle. It wasn't like the Goldbergs, you know, mm-hmm. which is like really broad, too smart for the room. It was, and the writers there were like, I, I went in cause I directed an episode and I went in with Tim and he said, this is how we do it. And I said, Oh, so you know what to be funny. <laughs> and I was kind of making a joke, but he was exactly it. They didn't want, it was a comedy writers, comedy, right. Writing. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, we're not going to go for the cheap jokes. We're going to be subtle and sophisticated, which, again, if you write comedy or, or you're a fan of good writing, you'd be like, that show was great. And all the critics were like, this show's amazing. But, you know, America wanted Roseanne or the Goldbergs or something. And not that those shows are bad, but there's a thing where you can go, oh, I mean, there's been terrible puppetry that's been super successful over the years. Absolutely. I mean, Alf was not a great performer. It was a great show. It was funny. It, it got the job done. But you can watch it and go like, oh, his eye focus is terrible. You know, again. But you and I know what that means. Most people are like, no. Most he's, people don't. Yeah. He's looking over the direction of where the guy. But you're like, yeah. But once you see a puppet think, you're like, and and Alf got better, just like anyone does. But and I'm not picking on Alf. I'm just saying, as as puppet snobs, because we're used to amazing people, you can kind of. Um, Lose focus on what are we doing? <laughs> you know, if Skippy, the if Skippy, the, the lizard goes like, like "Hey everybody, and you're laughing your ass off the Muppets. I, I I'm afraid we, we do, and we're not, but yeah, I'm always wary of painting ourselves into a corner of like, Oh, this is not only with precious with the, um, the concept and like, they're all sweet to each other. We all learn a valuable lesson, but more that we don't get so subtle that we lose people. Like it's still, like I said, I don't want to make someone cry. I want to make them laugh, right. and 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 I don't think puppetry the way the Muppets do it. Now you could do amazingly moving stories with puppets. I've seen again out of Europe, uh, amazing things about the Holocaust, and um, you know just uh, even things about um, the Vikings done with puppets that were just stunningly beautiful and moving. And you know my my brand. This is just the way I'm wired. I just want to immediately put googly eyes on him and, and have someone one of these Vikings who's you know <laughs> whose wife is dying or whatever, and you just want him to go like, yeah,
0: yeah, you know, just suddenly be the <laughs> because yeah. But that's just my my fetish or my uh, my. But all of us, I think we have true. you know. There's a different degrees of what you what. Right. I think that's why the Muppets are it is so yeah, universally loved. Tent. They can they can do ev- everything like you've it, said. It's
2: a big tent, and and. I I'm there to, and I've been this guy since day one as as a writer. As I'm there to make sure we don't get too precious, and you know it grates against some people, particularly you know uh, development executives in the past. have been like, oh, jokes. And Jerry Jewell said it best because he could do both. He was you know he could make them funny, and he said it has. To, and, and this is not original to him, but it, with the Muppets, it is important. It has to come from character. I don't care if it's a, an alien galoob on the planet, blah, blah. But if you know what it wants, and Frank Oz said, a puppet thinking is when you laugh. So all these masters that we got to work with and learn from, uh, it comes down to that. Seeing a puppet think, whether it's like, I'm going to eat that cookie, or I'm unhappy with the way my people are being treated, whatever your story is that's when you hook people in, because someone's not a sock anymore, and, and that's down to your guy's genius, and and people are always like, even Muppet people why don't you puppeteer? I said, because it's like saying, why don't I play the saxophone? I'd love to. I'm too big of a, I've become too big of a connoisseur of good puppetry to know how bad I am. Like, I, I wouldn't do it. I'll still write and draw, because I know I'm okay. <laughs> I, oh, geez. And, but, I, well, you have to kind of know where you sit in the thing, you know, I'm not going to be getting an Oscar anytime soon, but uh, what you guys do and any good puppeteer is is to be uh, admired more than I, I think it is just like dancing someone's yeah. a dancer and you see it like you said an amazing dancer you and i'll like that's amazing and it could be because it's, it's tricks uh they did a backflip that's amazing dancing wow and then you see someone who's a ballet <laughs> snob i dated a girl when i lived in New york who loved to go to ballet and i, I only wanted to hang myself because i was like so bored, but she would be like, "Look at the way she, you know, like moves her her Achilles heel." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's uh-huh. great." It, it's I'm so falling asleep, Um uh but it is it's it's an interesting art form. And again, I I'm a one note pony in that way. I just want to, I like them because they're silly and funny.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, being on a uh, on a set, Kirk, with you yeah. is. Always exciting and very positive experience. And, you know, it's what you said before about the enthusiasm. And everybody on your set, they're always very up and they're ready to go. And, you know, you're there with your captain's hat on, running the show and... (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I know it's, <laughs> it's, it's directing. It's, it's an exhausting exercise. It is. I, and at the end of the day, I mean, we're exhausted, but you must be just, cause you're, you're pulling the energy for everybody the whole way through the whole day. Yeah.
2: Well, there's two things. I've always said, if you're not having fun at your job, then change jobs. I mean, and I don't mean fun, like you're giggling yourself into a coma, but that, you know, it, it's engaging and you're enthusiastic about it. I, I, like I said, I wanted to be a comic. I did theater, I did improv, I did stand-up. Not in any way, even call them a career, but I, I stuck my toe in those waters. But doing, I did probably more theater, musical comedies in high school. And you get energy from an audience. Well, a stage, is, as, as Bill Bretta said, it's a captive audience. And he said, you run it like a stand-up. <laughs> I said, but working with directors who are, are leading by example, like, this is fun, like, let's, and, and also trying to create an environment where ideas are accepted, as opposed to You know, I use Jim Cameron as a as a a, a scapegoat for this stuff, but you just hear—I've never worked with him, but you hear stories about his sets are like people are terrified to screw up and all that. Uh, I'm like, you should not be terrified to say or do anything. You know, right? Uh, Again, what we're doing is puppets doing comedy. Yeah. If If you get serious about it, and you're 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 you know grinding your teeth and. I, I'm like well, I, I don't know what that's like. I've what's, never been. What's
0: the point? Yeah. You know what's the point? Yeah. I, and it's that old story that I've heard throughout the years of Jim would take an idea from the janitor. Yes. If, if the janitor had a good idea, he would take it.
2: I try to create an environment that's a fun so we can get through because it is exhausting, and I am exhausted. In fact, <laughs> I would I, when I'm doing the movies, which are like 14 hour days, uh, you know, 12 hours on set and a day, an hour before, and an hour after to talk about what you're going to do and what you're going to do the next day. I would go to lunch, I would have someone get my lunch and I would lay down and like literally like a mummy and just go unconscious for about 20 minutes. And and I, because I'm so tired, I could do that and just shut down, like go into a blank space. And then they knock in the door say, my lunch is ready and I'd have 20 minutes to eat my lunch. And it's really helpful. It's and you know, read about people, you know, great thinkers and artists who do that, like that catnap thing, but I find it helps. But I'm I'm glad you hear that cuz <laughs> Uh, some people I think early on thought it was, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it's more like I can be silly and say anything. So you should feel comfortable being silly and saying anything. And again, it depends on personalities. I know, uh, some, somebody once said, (laughs) you, you know, you're, you're not in front of the camera and, and well, they were being a little snarky and I said, no, I, I know, but I'm trying to create an environment that's, Fun and
0: like that guy's having fun, so we can't get used, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's it's all part of, your, and it sounds to me and, and it feels like you know it's part of creating a collaborative atmosphere.
2: Yes, and Jim, which is super important. I mean, Jim wasn't as silly and and kind of gag and get you know jokey as I am, but and he was actually it's funny. Jim was very thoughtful. I mean, if someone said you're going to do a Jim impression in one sentence, would be like, hmm, that's lovely. <laughs> You know, he wasn't like, "Hey, what a great idea!" You know, he wasn't guy smiling. <laughs> he was this kind of beatnik philosopher, but he loved the guy smile. I mean, Richard Hunt. You know, I mean, the, people like me. He he liked to be around kind of nutballs that were effusive because you could see it made him giggle and and almost pull out of his his cerebral. It's weird, and it's what's funny is at home. I'm that. I'm that Jim. I'm the. Hmm. And I just I live alone, I'm quiet. Uh, people come to my house and it's full of art stuff, not you know movie posters and black leather couches. I don't have a big screen TV in my living room because I am an introvert'm I'm, so I'm this weird extroverted introvert. It's actually uh. a thing they say where when you're alone, you're shut and I'm alone ninety percent of the time, like you know being on a set for three weeks, fine, the rest of the year, I'm alone. <laughs> Uh, I only go out like, I mean, when before COVID, I would go out once a week with some buddies and, and be this, hey, yeah quiet shirts and fun, and then go home and be quiet in a silent house. You know? I don't even <laughs> listen to music most of the time. Uh, really? so, yeah, so it, it's that yin and yang. And what's funny is when I'm with a group of people and we're having a good time, I get like high. Uh-huh. off of the energy is like, and, and that's what I'm trying to create that feedback loop of like, I'm having fun. So you're having fun. So I'm having fun. Cause you're having fun. And it, it part, I think it's part <laughs> of being an empath too. I, I I learned to be funny as a kid because I was uncomfortable when everyone was quiet. <laughs> like if everyone was in there, I would be uncomfortable. And the only way I knew how to, it was to blurt out. And as I said, I have no shame. I would say <laughs> the first thing that I thought or comment on something. And You know, to break the tension, because I don't like a tense set. I've been on tense sets where the director screams, and sometimes it's warranted and somebody's screwing up, you know, goofing off. And and even Leonard, I saw Leonard yell once in a meeting, and everyone was blown away because he was a very calm, very thoughtful guy. And he was just very frustrated, and things weren't going the way, and he was being sort of lied to. Not lied to, but they were covering for mistakes they were making. And uh, he just finally banged the tables, like, you know, and everyone's like, well, I'd never, I've worked with him two years, never saw that. And none other people had worked with him before and never saw that. But he was frustrated. So a well positioned explosion, if it's warranted, is fine. But most of the time, it's, I, you know, conviviality should be the baseline. That should and, be the
0: baseline. Yeah, yeah,
2: especially on Muppet things. Again, I, I don't do, I couldn't do a soap opera. I probably just keep making jokes. Uh,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I couldn't I can't picture that at all. No, I know I'm doing a medical insane.
2: trauma. What <laughs> you should do is we should make a little toot noise right there, like <laughs> I think it could be bowel cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help it. I, I, I'm very ambitious
0: uh, in that way. You know, uh, just a couple more things I want to yes! talk about here. I want to talk about the Muppets Take the Bowl yes! slash the O2. You directed those shows along with Andrew Williams, and you did. You directed all the video pieces, yes. didn't you?
2: Yes, did all the video pieces. the The Danny Trejo thing, and yeah, did all that.
0: Yes. So, speaking of uh, collaboration. Yeah. I feel like that's what that process was building that show. What, well, it, what's your it, yes, point of
2: view? One thing we did, and Jim Lewis and I had been saying it for a while, but again, we weren't in charge of anything, was let's bring the puppeteers in. <laughs> because they were so lauded and such an integral part of the, lauded within the company and a resource, we said, why are we fighting? it? we're fighting it because that's not what you do in Hollywood, man. You don't bring the performers in. You don't, I mean, unless they're Tom Cruise or something, you know, and then they have to read, they give their notes. But the classic TV is you tell them what they're going to say, and then you work with them, but they're not involved in the in the conceptual process. And and Jim and I were just tired of getting bitten on the butt by you guys saying I don't want to do that or whatever, which is fine. I mean, you're it's not just saying here, see these lines. It's like okay, you're Kermit, you you'll be thinking like Kermit, which is an asset, not a hindrance. Um, and so we said let's bring them in and let's do. The Muppet Show Live. And and so we brought you guys in early and had a read-through. And it's a great, again, it was a collaboration, which is how I think the Muppets should be done. And I know the, the people at Disney now are much, because of the success of that, they're more open to like, oh, that's part of the process. And I think it's because the ball shows and the O2 shows worked so well. And, I mean, all the critics like, oh, my God, where is it, where have they been? Why aren't they doing this? I still, and we've been saying that afterwards. Why
0: are we doing this? Like, we, Why are you, we doing this? You can do it without being live. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can, uh, yeah, might be, and might be know, fun. And I know they're trying. Uh, Kirk, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire yeah, questions now. So yeah, I, I don't know how you'll do with this because oh, your brain I'm is uh, so slow. It takes so long to get started. But here we go. Are you ready? That's, that's not the first question, but yes! here we go. Did I win? <laughs> yes. What's the hardest part about working with the Muppets?
2: The hardest part for me, because I've been doing it so long, is dealing with people who, well, that's not fair. I was saying dealing with development people and executives who don't get the Muppets. The Muppets, mm-hmm. the hard part really is just like, how are we going to do this for the budget?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, that's yeah. That's fair. That's okay. fair. What's yeah. the easiest part about working with the Muppets?
2: Uh. Mm. working with you guys, working with friends, I, I think that's fun. It's always like this will be – that's the easy part, um, and collaborating. So we can we all want to make a cool, fun thing, so
0: that's, that's easy. What's your biggest strength as a uh, director or a designer or a writer? Oh, God. What do you think your biggest strength is?
2: For Muppets or just in general? Just in general. I don't know. I, I think – a willingness to like you said have anyone has a good idea is a good idea and to play I, I tried particularly as a director i'm saying mm-hmm. to play on the day i think you have to have all your plans and and then play on the day um so that you don't you're not it's not hitchcock or shoot the storyboards i'll be i'll be in my room it's like here's where we want to go we all kind of know what this is about how are we going to have fun doing that and and if this is real you know, aside from what's scripted. And sometimes it leads to arguments like bill brett and I would get into to huge, not <laughs> fights because we're both wanted to make sense. But he's like, yeah, this character wouldn't say that. I go, and why would he say it? Well, because it's funny and he's an idiot. Well, you know, I've got to be that character. I don't think he's an idiot that way, and and so like, all right, well, what do you say? And then what cracks me up about Bill, and I say this in every interview, he's hilariously funny when he's on, and then he goes, "Yeah, I don't
0: want it. Let's not do that."
2: I'm like, "No, that was your improv was so much better than what we wrote. Do that." I'm like, "No, no, no," because he thinks about it. I'm like, "Stop thinking."
0: We're yeah, we're also always inside our head, and because yes. we're looking at what we're doing, we're like, "That nah, doesn't work." Yes. no, it
2: works. No, 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 I'm the. That's the great thing about being the audience member or being the director of the moments. You're the audience. So, again, because I'm an enthusiast and I like to laugh, I'm like, no, that was hilarious. And you're like, well, that I don't think that character said it. I mean, you know, that's the other thing. Kermit wasn't always like, hey, everybody, I'm your best friend. He'd be like, shut up, Fozzie, shut up, Piggy! you're making me crazy. Right. And, you know, we forget that. So, I, I think, um, so as a director, I think it's let's play. I don't know, as a writer, I think it's just my ideas. I, I had a guy who read a pilot I wrote once Not Muppety uh, say, you're either insane or you're a genius. And I said, well, I, I hope to the latter. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I think my ideas are. I, I pretty much. I one time had an, exec, an executive say, "I want you to pitch me the idea that no one else, you would not pitch anywhere else." And I had an idea, and I pitched it to him. And he goes, "I really like that." <laughs> it was. I, know, I won't pitch it, but uh, it was way out there. And he said, he said, no, I want to hear an idea that no uh, that I've never been heard before. You know, it's not a family, and they're on the moon, whatever. I don't care how lands. I want to hear the idea you have that you've never pitched, and you would be scared to, cause, and no one's ever made anything like it. And so I pitched an idea, and he goes, that, you actually, that's it's like you. What's the question <laughs> you you're asked? right. <laughs> and so we actually went into development, and he couldn't sell it because all his people above him were like, you can't do a movie. You can't do a show about
0: that. But he got it. What's so a little bit of validation. All right, how about a weakness? What's your biggest weakness as a director or a writer? <sighs> I think my biggest weakness
2: as a writer is um, probably, uh, I wouldn't say story. Um, it, well, in some ways, I, I, what I had to learn really was story. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it's story, like the, the, the linear aspect of it. And I think the other weakness is I don't like and it's a, it's more of a a taste thing than a, than a weakness maybe, but it is a weakness. It's like, I don't like average stories. I mean, you see the stuff when you hear like, Oh, Netflix or Amazon developing all these shows. And you're like, it's a cop show. It's a medical show. It's, you know, it's a show about a, a, a knight and a dragon. And you're like, okay, I, I want to do a show about, you know, it's something that's completely out there. Uh, and I, I think it's that it's hard. It's hard to not be, like I said, with kids are all right. Great show, genius, too smart for the room. I don't think I'm too smart for the room. I think I'm too weird for the room. So it's kind of a weakness, <laughs> is uh, that as a director, I guess my weakness sometimes is patience. I get frustrated. Not, I mean, it depends on what it is. Sometimes I'm just frustrated because it's freaking hard, you know? Uh, but I tend to not take that out on anyone. I just might go, ah, you know, I was like, what? what's the problem? <laughs> um, and also, I get so giddy that I forget details. Like, uh, thank God I have good script supervisors because I get so in the moment as either an audience member or like playing like, Oh my God, and you could do this and this and this. And, and we shot it. Great. Moving on. And they're like, no, no, you didn't do, the, you didn't do the yeah. part of the dialogue that explains the story. I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh. Uh, so I, sometimes <laughs> my enthusiasm get runs away with me. So I guess that's, that's a weakness. I don't know. It's hard to
0: judge yeah. yourself. You tell me. <laughs> no, I, I like that answer. I mean, I think it, my weakness I think is like, don't listen. So what I say to you is I don't listen. <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite thing about working with the Muppets? Oh, the play, the collaboration, the play.
2: And the, there is no, too, just riffing off that. There's no idea too silly. Like it will be considered. It might not work or people might not want to do it, but you, no one has ever said that's too silly for the Muppets. I've heard people say, <laughs> you know, the, the funny thing is, and this is a whole other conversation is that the reality issues we get to in story or script meetings. Like I remember one time, uh, somebody had a problem with, oh, I remember. It was dinosaurs. We're designing the dinosaurs. And I designed uh, Fran and the daughter to have hair. And um, <laughs> Brian Henson, once we sold the show and we were designing wigs for them to wear, like that hair, he goes, eh, dinosaurs wouldn't have hair like that. And I said, So <laughs> you have like, a reality problem with the walking, talking dinosaurs that live in a house and go to jobs? because they have hair. it's like, yeah, I mean, we should do, and his, he wasn't wrong. He's like, we should do spines and horns and things that look like hair. I said, yeah, but it just, it cracked me up. Like, yeah, you're right. That's, yeah, that is That's the too that, far. And so with <laughs> Muppet stuff, I mean, we've gotten to insane conversations where I get incredibly frustrated because people are, you know, what do they say? Straining at gnats and swallowing camels. And I said, what, you know, and I usually go back to what part of the Frog and Pig are in love with each other in show business, and and you're having a problem with with uh, you know that he talks to the audience and, and whatever. Uh, yeah. And again, I it's it's everyone has their
0: mo I have moments where I'm like, no, that's that's too far. Like that, I know it's weird though. You know, it's just, I think it's just a personal taste thing. But and you it guys just, come it, from it character as the
2: performers. You come from character,
0: and that that's much
2: more defensible. It's like I think it's funny. I mean, you know, but I don't think Kermit, Piggy, Father, whatever you guys are doing. Would do that unless we can come up for a reason, and then because you got you have to do it as a writer. We start from the outside in. You guys start from the inside out, and so we obviously meet in in that middle ground. And and sometimes there's friction, but I I never I've never felt like there was an argument that wasn't well founded on both sides, and we just figure out how to make it work. But that's that is collaborative art. Anything,
0: musicians, puppeteers, whatever. Speaking of, if you weren't a director or a writer or a producer or a designer or all of those things, what would be your career? Don't say I, accountant. Uh, yeah, I thought about it. I probably would have gone into the biological
2: sciences, not medicine, but probably. I, I was really interested in biology, marine biology, um, particularly cetaceans, dolphins, whales, because of their intelligence level. Uh, so probably some one of the uh, biological sciences, and uh, you know, working in zoos or, or animal um uh what's the word preservation, making sure that mountain gorillas stay alive and stuff like that, love that. That's a big thing for me. Uh, probably why I like the Muppets you know either way I was gonna work with animals. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to yeah, my other saw job would have been somewhere in the sciences. I love science. Uh, I wasn't smart enough for physics, but I love like theoretical quantum physics stuff fascinates me. Um that's but cool. you have to know a lot of math. So <laughs> it was I like she yeah. was a big hero of mine. <laughs> And he was art and science, and I love both, and I realized art was a hell of a lot easier. You do
0: have to be as smart. <laughs> so maybe okay. that made me smarter. Maybe. Oh. So my last question for you, Kirk yeah. is uh, Jerry Nelson once said to me that Sesame Street is great, You know, uh, but you should always have something that is your own, that you create. Yes. So my question to you is, what is that for you? Well, that's the show that I
2: was just telling you about. Uh, two things. Cat yeah? Moranee Submarine, which is sort of an adult version of Pee-wee's Playhouse, but... Gets all my friends to do short, like they would show a cartoon. Everyone would contribute short segments, puppet animation, whatever, comedy bits. And then the other one is a puppet sh- troupe that does comedy that isn't the Muppets, but is just another option as opposed to just the Muppets doing that. So those two things. Look for Kickstarter! <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you are actively working on... on yeah, yeah. I mean, COVID okay. and other family matters have, have kind of slowed things down, and the election and all that madness. But I am working on it, and probably it was going to be the spring, but now I have some jobs working with you guys, so it might be pushed to summer,
0: but yes. Kurt, thank you so much for for talking to me. That was awesome.
2: Thank you. I love chatting with you. And your name was Mark. Is that it? Mark? That's close enough. Mark, Vigel, Mark Virgil. That, yeah, that's so, close.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's Below the Frame. We will be back with a brand new episode next week where we'll be speaking with Alice Dineen. Get updates and stuff about Below the Frame and Muppets and Sesame Street and pretty much anything I feel like posting on my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok accounts at Welcome Matt V, or, you know, you can just search Matt Vogel. Below the Frame is produced by me, Matt Vogel. And if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. The theme song for Below the Frame was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by my band, The Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast logo was created by Dave Holteen at HolteenDesign.com. Thanks to Kirk Thatcher, Alice and Julianne Busher, and as always, my son Jack, for being a part of this episode. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening. I am Matt Bobo. We'll see you next time when we go Below the Frame. Bye-bye. Go, 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 Below the Frame.